Authorized is on Patreon. Head to patreon.com slash authorized pod if you want to support us. For $3 a month, you can help us buy these books. For $6 a month, we'll give you a shout-out on the podcast. And for even more money, you can demand that we read and discuss a certain novelization. Pretty cool. If we get enough listeners, we will start putting out bonus episodes, so tell your friends. Authorized.com. It's not authorized.com. What? Patreon.com slash authorized pod. Welcome to Authorized, a podcast where we wanly discuss the novelization of any film fortunate enough to have one. Novelizations are lush, wonder-filled books, fixated on capturing the perspective of their child narrator. While the prose and vocabulary are nothing to write home about, these books revel in feelings of childhood powerlessness, wanderlust, and burgeoning puberty. To be a child is to not know. To not know what dangers are real or imagined, to not know the ways of the world, and to not know even what you do not know. These books commit fully to this paranoid limitation, swimming as much in anxieties as they do in real, physical obstacles. When the narrator of a novelization is not present for a scene, he must present it to us as a breathless word salad of a secondhand story stumbling through and over key details as only a kid's billion-track mind could. Novelizations say, Oh, you like these kids? How would you like to be these kids? We're your hosts, a loose coalition of novelization enthusiasts. My name is Andrew Overby. I'm Johnny Pomato. And I'm Hannah Blackman. The Goonies is a 1985 action-adventure film directed by Richard Donner. It follows the titular Goonies, a motley crew of misfit children who have sworn an oath to adventure and loyalty. When a new real estate development threatens their homes, this group of intrepid thrill-seekers puts faith in a decorative treasure map in the hopes that it will grant their families the financial autonomy to save their homes. And livelihoods and whatever. Little do these scamps know that the alleged treasure is located under a restaurant currently being operated or sat in by a formidable crime family trio who have their own taste for riches and no qualms about killing children to get them. And now an Andrew Overby joke. The film was remade by Ron Howard in 2022 under the title 13 Lives. End of joke. The novelization of The Goonies was written by James Caan, based on a screenplay by Chris Columbus and a story by Stevie Spielberg. It was published by Warner Books in 1985. I wasn't going to take ownership for that joke because I don't get it. <laughs> did, did anybody see 13 Lives? Uh, no. I did not, no. <laughs> it's the Ron Howard movie about uh, the Thai divers rescuing the soccer team. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, the- I, I would have laughed if I had re- known that. <laughs> It is. It's one of those movies too that's like just forever going to be kind of impossible to talk about because any anything with that with a number 
you know, word title. You just spend your whole life being like, is it called 13 Lives? How is many it of called, them were there? Is it called Seven Went? <laughs> Our guest today. You may know him from his history at Cracked, his present day participation in IGN. Did I make that up? I was there three years, but I'm gone now as of recently. So you're not. Okay, well, far my off. defense is that when you were there, it was the present. And of course, <laughs> the Small Beans Podcast Network. Does that make sense? <laughs> <laughs> That's it's right, a little small bit of beans. A, small Beans presently. That's an important one. It's a little bit of like a, you know, 60% of the time it works all the time sure. type of. Wow. Michael Swaim. How are you Michael doing today? Michael Swaim. Uh, and that wasn't an Anchorman reference. I always announce my coming with a panther howl. Wow. <laughs> uh, rat, Ratatat has a good song that uses that sound. Wildcat. Look it up. Wildcat. Hey, I'm bringing a weird energy and I'm here. Thanks for having me, y'all. Yeah, that's uh, you want to check that because we have like a very serious demeanor about these books. They're sacred to us and never shall a joke be cracked. All right. Well, that was a hey, cracked. Nice. I love. Hey, I worked it in. If you could work the rest of my resume in throughout the two hours, that would be great. I can Um, get small beans in. No problem. I don't know how I'm going to get IGN into a sentence. (laughs) Yeah, there's a few words campaign. Anyway, Uh, happy to be here. Have not read the novelization, but uh, have seen Goonies many times. Um, In fact, my father was in the theater watching Goonies while I was being born. I came into this world. And that's uh, why I gravitated towards this. You gave me a few options, and I was like, gotta go Goonies. It's the family. It's like my birthright. As uh, Michael alluded to, we are returning to a format from, I guess... When Johnny came on for uh, Jurassic Park Dominion, where we're essentially going to regale him about this book. Uh, but before we do that, Michael, you've, you've already started on it, but uh, what's your relationship to this movie? When's the first mm-hmm. time you saw mm-hmm. it? And has it changed at all over the years? Definitely saw it at the perfect age. Um, I mean, it's still... I, as I said, it came out the day, or it was in theaters the day I was born. So it's um, still technically before my time, or the before the time like I formed memories. Um, but I saw it very young. I saw it when I was could have been one of the Goonies. Um, but I remember that it already felt, you know, a bit dated or like from a bygone era. But I will say, I was really delighted by it, and watching it again recently for this. I landed on the hot take that I think I'm going to stick with the rest of my life because I, I watched it like, sorry, it was, it's hard to schedule things. They take a long time. And I watched this around Christmas time or shortly after Christmas time. And uh, everyone was doing the obligatory Home Alone rewatch and posting threads about the genius of Home Alone. And I'm like, this is the better Home Alone. Like bumbling crooks against kids who lay traps in a confined environment, um, but it's Richard Donner, Steven Spielberg, and Christopher Columbus or Chris Columbus, I guess he'd prefer I say instead of the genocidal <laughs> dude. Um, and uh, if you don't know those folks, you know like Richard Donner's Superman and many other notable things, Maverick, uh, others. 16 blocks is good. Speaking of movies that start with numbers. Wait, um, you're listing Donner's? The Donner's. Lethal Weapon. Lethal Weapon. Sorry. That's, I w- that's what I was trying to get to. I'm like, I can't end without the obligatory. Uh, and then Chris Columbus, of course, the first Harry Potter and many other, like, gets the mind of children. As Steven Spielberg seemed to be obsessed with at this time, 
Uh, I think he's moved away from this in the last decade or so, or decade and a half. But you think Steven Spielberg has moved away from being obsessed with the minds of children? Have you been keeping yeah, up with the I recent think he's one? Tr- I mean, yeah, but he's like interested in like war horses, and <laughs> there's a bunch of more out. It's always a core thing, but this was the period where he was like, "I'm all in on the magic and wonder of being a child," um, as evidenced by you know ET, but also I think. The his like hand in my what was really of my time, which was Animaniacs, Pinky in the Brain, Freakazoid, like that whole block. Um, it felt like he was actually trying to meet kids at their level. And I think the if you're referencing Fablemans, I feel like that's about wonder and awe and childhood. He's still more like puberty age um, than Elliot age, but it's also more like more of an ensemble piece and a slice of life look at a thing. Whereas this was, he was making stuff about kids for kids and seemed to want to be talking to kids. Um, I don't know if it lines up exactly, but I feel like he was probably having young kids at this time. Like the, his first long conversations with his own children at this time, probably if I'm doing my math right. Uh, so, you know, I don't need to explain why, but I think when you have, Spielberg is a genius, and I, I can go into why I think that, but when you have his touch, Chris Columbus <laughs> knows his way around that's the kid, a, and I don't mean that in the whole way. That's the thing you way. can't say about yourself. And, um, <laughs> and you Richard Donner's a, another person. Yeah. Chris Columbus knows his way around a kid. You can't self-proclaim yeah. that. And Richard Donner uh, can direct a movie. Like I, Those aren't all my favorite movies, but they're all fine. They're all very, you know, directed well and good movies to look at. Um, there's so much charm. Uh, all the characters are differentiable and unique. Uh, Sean Astin slays. I mean, the whole cast slays. And I love how many different characters <laughs> get a chance to shine. I forgot Joey Pants is in it. That Like, so incredible when there's someone you completely forgot about. I'm sure we'll talk about... I, I'm very curious as to how the novel depicts, if at all... <laughs> Like the social services around Chunk, or they just say you're gonna you're gonna live with me now. Does did that work <laughs> out for them? I wonder how oh, that went. Oh, Michael, you <laughs> have a surprise coming your way. Yes, nice. we do get some answers as to what Sloth's Lovely. life is like with the Chunk family. And I gotta <laughs> the Chunk family. Uh, I gotta. I'll just wrap up relationship wise with this that provides some continuity in my life with Goonies is um, occasionally my creative partner, Abe Epperson, and I, who are constantly trying to break into TV and film and have succeeded and failed in various combinations, um, we're, we're asked to pitch sometimes to different catalogs. You know, like we'll pitch a bunch of, like Hanna-Barbera will say, here's a list of everything we own. We want like an Adult Swim reboot that has like a skewed sense of humor. And we pitch like 10 on different, like Secret Squirrel would be good for that or whatever. And um, I'm sorry that I'm forgetting what production company currently owns Goonies, but they asked us to do a packet of those. And I thought we came up with a darn good Goonies one where Chunk and Sloth um, are trying to solve the treasure of Oak Island, which is a famous real treasure left there by the Knights Templar. And they get caught in a trap and they somehow get a message back to the Goonies. And Sean Astin has to be like, (laughs) I know we're old, but we have to go be Goonies and go to this island. And it's about, you know. It's the only thing that seemed that gives some credibility to like when you play Uncharted or I guess watch Uncharted. The big question in your mind is always, why is there this giant stone puzzle the size of a building and why does it still function? But you hear about the Templars and the Oak Island stuff and you're like, maybe that can be true. Maybe that dream can be real. Yeah. I think one of the biggest uh, mysteries mm-hmm. 
uh, <laughs> probably dwarfing anything in Goonies or Uncharted is why is there a 450 page Uncharted novelization of the movie that came out last year? Does that sell? We'll read it at some point. We are really putting no. off reading that one. <laughs> no, that's that's the key. Is it on Audible though? <laughs> Who I want to know who's going on. If it's a, on Audible, read by Mark Wahlberg, I, I'm there. I think if it's Wahlberg, it's a yes. If it's Holland, I'm out. Wahlberg I don't read. want it. <laughs> Johnny, you seen this movie before? Oh, Andrew, have I seen this movie before? This was a childhood favorite of mine. I watched it so many times, although I think I fairly recently discovered that while I have seen this movie start to finish, you know, several times, the majority of me watching it was like I Mm. would flip to it on cable and usually see like the back half of it. Uh, Because a few years ago, uh, when I went to see it again for the first time in a very long time, there was a lot of stuff that happened early in this film that I just completely forgot about. I forgot that there was a dead body in a freezer. I I forgot how or why the kids even bother to go to the restaurant and all this such. But um, yes, I loved this movie as a kid. And uh, during the height of lockdown, uh, I took my wife to see it at a uh, local drive-in because she had never seen it before. And I I think I oversold it a bit because, uh, I don't know, halfway through, she turned to me and said, you used to like this movie? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's it's fun. It's cute. Uh, I, I will concede that these days I, I find it uh, a bit uh, annoying they're they're very loud <laughs> oh, the, the kids are very loud they're always yelling and uh, uh th- this this grouchy old adult like kind of starts to root for the uh fratelli brothers or uh whatever um but uh yeah i i have some great affection for this yes donner brought it his all uh i love the whole like you know booby traps and treasure hunting things so yeah i i've always uh had affection for this movie i don't know if i love it as much as as much as i once did but uh but yeah just remember all of us uh two things a spielberg is still very much making movies for children because (laughs) you cannot convince me that ready player one was for adults and second um no matter when we were born, you know, this movie, Goonies, was not before our time. Because <laughs> this is our time. Our time. Right now. I feel that this book... Hannah, cute, I, uh, cute, and, and defer to you. Hannah, I, I feel like we, I, we took the pulse on this at some point. You, you feel favorably about this book, right? I feel like one of its greatest boons is that it really captures the aching sentimentality of the Mikey character and and everything he hopes for this group of people. And there's a lot less yelling <laughs> in the book. Yes. <laughs> Yes, you, the, the yelling is all in your head. Uh, I think that this book's greatest strength, maybe, is having it in the first person with Mikey. I think that that adds so much flavor and texture to the characters. Not just him, but he is able to describe his friends in a way that a kid would describe them. Uh, I think it does get into trouble uh, later when we need to shift perspective because you remember, oh, there's things that happen in the movie that Mikey is not present for, but we'll get to that, I'm sure. No, I totally disagree with you, Johnny. I think that the thing about this book is that it's told from Mikey's perspective exclusively. And so when, towards the climax of the film, really late, when Chunk catches back up with them and he's with Sloth, instead of us getting a chunk perspective chapter we just get mikey retelling us a story that chunk has told him off screen and so 
Uh, it's the chapter is just called Chunk Story, which usually these chapters are doing the Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow thing, where they're mimicking serials yeah. and they're having titles like uh, Journey to the Restaurant dot dot dot, uh, you know, uh, Unrequited Love dot dot dot, where it's like uh, all these all these different things that will be in the chapter. Little but, hints about what's ahead. What's yeah, exactly. This one's like Chunk Story. That's all you're getting. And just a taste of it. And as a result, it's a little... I, yeah, I, I like that they do that because for the first hundred pages or whatever it was, I was thinking, are we ever going to learn all about Chunk and Sloth and all this stuff that is happening elsewhere? And when you get it, you do get pretty much everything that's in the movie. But because of the format of how it's written, it it does read a little too much to, for my taste. Like, a, and then this happened, and then no. this happened, and then this happened, it. and then me it. too. Johnny, it's it's very, very childlike. They just yeah. copy and pasted the pitch in the room. Like this is just Spielberg's <laughs> notes on what happens to Chunk. I never feel less like I might have a child than when a child is telling me a story and they keep saying "and then" between like every event, and it's coming up like three times a sentence. It's annoying for sure, and this book is a little annoying for the same reason, but I love that it goes whole hog on it's a book from the perspective of a kid. It really doesn't pull any of its punches. Okay, so just a taste Okay, so here. I love children, and so I don't mind when children talk to me. Look, I like children, and I will probably have children, and I'll probably come back and edit this part out into like a 45-second beep <laughs> once I have four sons. Okay, chunk story. Thinking of Chunk reminds me that he was having quite an adventure of his own during all this, even though I didn't find that out until later. But now's as good a time as any to tell you about it, I guess. So I'll tell you. He said, so now we're just in Chunk dialogue. The last time I see you guys, we're in the counterfeiting room in the basement of the lighthouse, and the Fratellis are coming back, and there's this frozen dead guy on the floor, and I thought it was all over for us, and I wasn't that scared since I had to fight off that wolf up near Vancouver that one time, and then you stuff me into the freezer with the stiff and close the door. I can't believe you guys. I mean, I try to yell, but my vocal cords get frozen up, and I can't make a sound, and this corpse keeps sliding down onto me, so I'm staring in his face, which, if you remember has three eyes on account of the bullet hole between the normal ones. Then the freezer door opens, and I'm about to cuss you out, except I notice it's Jake at the door, so I keep real still until I hear him leave, and then I'm out of there. So I hear you calling from inside the fireplace, right? The fireplace, jeez. So I tell you, let me in. So what do you tell me? Take a hike. Well, thanks a whole lot. I'm a sitting duck out here, and my best friends won't pull me out with a rope when they see me going down for the third time. Great friends. Then I heard the Fratelli gang again, but since I'm a resourceful kind of guy, I leap for the window in a single bound, slink through like a ferret, and I'm free. I don't know why you guys didn't think of it. Anyway, I'm outside now, and it's night, and it's cold, and I'm scared out of my mind, so I just start running. Reminds me of the time I was one of those... (laughs) The lies. I love the lies. Reminds me of the time I was one of the pacers in the Portland Marathon. Of course, that was before I had my, you know, my weight problem, and then I was never timed officially, but I used to be a pretty good hoofer, especially cross-country, so I try to keep that in mind as I take off out of the lighthouse. I run through the graveyard, which is no picnic. I run through the woods. I run up the hill. I get all the way to the road before I remember we had bikes down there and I could have been riding, but I'm too scared to go back now, so I just keep running. There's, like, eight pages of this, and cataclysmically, uh, I'm assuming against the author's intention, the insert photos come in the middle of it. (laughs) Yeah, it's amazing. I think it's great writing. It is so in the voice of Chunk, which is different than Mikey's voice as a narrator and a writer and a character. And I'm just so, I wouldn't want to read a whole book from Chunk's perspective. No. 
But the one chapter is like perfect and his adventure is like so frenetic and high energy anyway that it like really is a nice little change of pace right in the middle of the book. I agree. And the kid in the movie who plays Chunk, who's now like a big hotshot Hollywood lawyer, I believe, uh, he is, I think, the uh, simultaneously the funniest and sort of best child actor like of the bunch, but he's also the most annoying. Like those things are at odds with each other, but they also are this like perfect combined force to make him the best kid. Uh, but a little of him goes a long way, and I think it's a very good thing that he's sort of separate from the rest of the story because whenever he is on screen, he's really funny. I think when he is breaking down for the Fratelli brothers and and confessing all of his sins is my favorite part of the whole <laughs> movie. I think it's hilarious. I laugh every time, but he is really annoying, but in a good way, right? Michael, given the perspective of seeing this movie a bunch of times, not having read the book, I understand, like, I'm not an actor. I'm, most, my most performative form is a podcast host. But given the taste we just gave you of the text, does that seem chunkish? Does that line up with the way you think of him speaking? Because, I, I, you know, these authors, they often haven't seen the movie. They're, like, working from a script. So mm. it's very unlikely that this guy had seen the performance. Uh, as someone who himself is locked eternally into strictly a Mikey perspective, <laughs> uh, I'm happy to speak to this. Uh, it, I think it's in the ballpark of uh, screenplay chunk. Uh, I do want to like re up on what Johnny said about. I I think that's also my favorite part of the movie is the confession of the sins and the hand in the blender, and um, that actor just nails it. Really sings for me. I was worried that that perform like I laughed because I was a dumb kid, but I laughed again. I was like, no, he's really good, especially for the age. Wow. Um, it's broad. It's not as good as, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis, but it's funny. <laughs> it made me laugh. Uh, this kid is going to get murdered. That's very funny to me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that vibe. He brings that vibe. And um, I would say what you just read is in the ballpark, but m even more than Chunk, it's like a pitch-perfect John Candy of this era, any character. <laughs> um, and there's some overlap there it made me realize. So... Yeah, a rough approximation. I, I think my, my complaint about it, if any, I mean, I, I love what this chapter is doing, but my complaint is like the chunk character that we get on screen is talking more like I talk, where he like gets a thought out, then he gets another thought out. This, this passage is like, Hannah, it reminds me of the taxi driver novelization. It's just this like <laughs> rampant stream of consciousness, which is not at least how the actor gives it but it's exciting it's like a different except for that very memorable part where he gives a long monologue sobbing and yeah i feel like it's almost keying off that moment specific it sounds the most like that of any other chunk moment but you're right he's not constantly doing a long list it's just that one time i think that um it's cor it's correct the way that this is done in that like most of the book when chunk is in it his dialogue is normal right it's short it's brief it's like oh you guys come on whatever yeah. right the thing and when he has a chance to speak at extension under duress it is this sort of like oh my god oh my god oh my god long stream so to be like okay uh when is he telling this story like right after they've been rescued maybe and he's just like i have to get it out you have to know what happened with this big guy yeah 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 uh, it feels right to me in line with the character and it's and the rest of the dialogue in the book is not like an attempt to recreate this over and over that's a great point 
That's a great point. And it is, I mean, I was laughing reading it. So it's it, it was effective for, for what it was going for. Um, let's jump back to the beginning of the book. The book has uh, the flair of giving us the Goonie Oath right up top. Do we ever in the movie get the Goonie Oath outright? Just front to back. It gets interrupted uh, at a certain point, but I don't know if we ever come around. I don't think we ever come around and get it start to finish. Johnny, can you, uh, can you read us the oath out of the first couple pages here if you have it up? I will never betray my goondock friends. We will stick together until the whole world ends. I just realized it rhymed. Through heaven <laughs> and hell and nuclear war, good pals like us will stick like tar. <laughs> war, tar. Mm-hmm. In the city or the country or the forest or the boonies, I am proudly declared a fellow Goonie singular. Uh, well, they're kids. What do you want? And the like the meters off. It's not emphasizing <laughs> yeah. in any pleasing way. A terrible poem. Real bad. <laughs> Definitely but something they're finding a kid treasure would come up with. Building traps and going in caves. They're not sitting around perfecting their poetry. It's understandable. <laughs> yeah, the Goonies definitely grow up into dads who are like, uh, learn to work with your hands. This, this philosophy <laughs> crap isn't going to do anything for you. <laughs> um, Who needs we, to work when you have a pocket full of jewels? Yeah, that's it. Do what I did, son. Find jewels. <laughs> I don't understand what you're always complaining about. <laughs> Go to the most dangerous place in town and dig. Yeah. On the day that you find out your parents are getting evicted from their home, find a treasure map and it turns out it's real and you get the jewels. What is so hard about that? Well, you know, and this this is what's wrong with today's youth because I go out and I find treasure under some murderer's house and I I save the neighborhood, but then we have the money I got and so my kids are soft. They never have to go out and Mm. find treasure. It's a Sopranos thing, yeah. (laughs) Um, We get a prologue in this book. That is horrible. I mean, Hannah, would you agree that the prologue is horrible? It's a news article. It is written as a news article reporting the escape of Jake Fratelli. I don't think it's horrible. I think it does a really poor job of approximating the speech of a news article. <laughs> okay. It, it does read a little more like a police blotter, I will say. As does yeah, the, uh, the the climax, yeah. the epilogue. Look, I don't think the Astoria Evening Standard is doing a whole lot of heavy work on their crime reporting. This paragraph in particular. So the 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 article for the listener is a description of the Fratelli escape, uh the first scene of the movie. Uh so we get that I sort of mention that. as as journalism as opposed to as an outright scene. And this one paragraph, it says, The escape had obviously been well-planned. As Jake approached the waiting vehicle, Francis lit a long stream of gasoline that had been poured 20 yards from the car, creating a wall of flame that effectively cut off immediate pursuit. Now, it's not terribly written, but it feels like a book. It doesn't feel like the format of news at all. I think it is worth noting that the prologue is... A page. A total. page that really it's upset me. To get upset I'll tell about. you that. <laughs> <laughs> it got me back though. from further pursuit has never been in a newspaper article. I agree with you there. <laughs> yeah, thank it's you. It's like too descriptive. Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's like one step away from being like 
the flames represented the danger that they posed to this uh, to the neighborhood. It's like, yeah, I'm a failed novelist forced to work at this newspaper. Oops, did I type that? <laughs> Every time you see a song in Family Guy, it's like, hmm, there's some failed career <laughs> ambition happening here. Um, okay, but then the book, I mean, it's just nonstop bangers. Basically, it got me back so hard. Um, on page nine, and this will never come up again, on page nine, we get this amazing bit of uh, Mikey interiority, because once again, he's our narrator, uh, regarding the Mad Magazine fold-ins. This is a description of Mikey being just sort of bored at home, which I think we all remember that feeling of being bored as a child. Something kind of gets away from you as you get older because you just have so many commitments that, like, anxiety fills that boredom, right? But if, if you can remember that feeling of just being like, truly, what do I do with my tiny little life? Uh, and it says, kitchen, nothing going on. Dining room, definitely nothing. Rec room. I turned on the TV, but it was Saturday morning, which means kitty cartoons which means nothing. I love that, too, because they're young, but they're the type of young where they don't want to seem younger. They're very much like, we're not kids. Don't call us that. There was a Mad Magazine on the couch, so I sat down and picked it up. On the back was this thing called a fold-in, which is like a fold-out in a magazine, only the opposite. What it is is the picture with words, which says something like, nuke the reds, but then you fold the page in on itself, and it suddenly makes this different picture totally and says, ban the bomb or something. It's like a secret message sort of buried in the original. You probably don't know exactly what I'm talking about if you've never seen it, but you probably get the idea. Anyway, if you know what the deal is, you can look at the back cover and sometimes figure out what the secret picture and message is going to be when the page is folded in. So I figured this one out. Boring. There was a half-finished jigsaw puzzle on the table, which I'm definitely good at. I can sort of see where the pieces go without really trying to figure it out. My guidance counselor in the 8th grade told me I scored high in analysis of visual relationships, but read below my level. It's not that I don't like to read. I do. It's just that as soon as I start reading, I see it all in my mind's eye, and it's like a movie in my head, and I get sort of lost in those visual relationships, and my mind wanders a little, and then I lose my place. This was like... This is just straight fire from Khan. He's like, I'm going to really get into the type of child that, that this is and the ways in which he's intelligent and the ways in which, as I think we've all seen, like sometimes children are super intelligent, but it's not apparent depending on like how you're measuring it, right? Yeah, there's a lot of moments in the book that I like, especially about Mikey, about himself, where he has like a real sort of artist soul and he has these ideas that he gets sort of like wrapped up in about like, well, autumn is this sort of magical time because of the way the wind cuts through me or like putting on those old pirate clothes makes us feel like we're sharing something important with people from the past. And I don't really get it, but I know that it feels powerful. And this book has a through line where he's like, I'm sharing a soul with One-Eyed Willie. <laughs> and that is what's dragging me on this quest in ways that I was like, so it's like such so insightful to that character and is way more interesting than it has to be for like a little adventure story. And maybe even more interesting than what's in the movie. I mean, I know it's <laughs> sort of a through line in the film, but uh, the, getting Mikey's inner monologue really spells out this connection he feels to One-Eyed Willie in a way that is maybe tossed off a bit in the film. Mm -hmm. Hannah, the autumn thing, I, I'll 
uh, maybe we'll get to it later, but I, I do have a passage bookmark where he's like, I wasn't going to back down. Not now. Not here in this Halloween breeze. And I was like, this guy loves <laughs> autumn. Holy shit. Uh, yeah, he's a, he's a good little kid with, like, a really emotionally intelligent heart. <laughs> I love him. I'm adopting him. The papers are in I, process. This is, we didn't talk about my relationship to Goonies, no, but no, I, don't I don't have ask one. You, uh, you know, um, I don't ask you about No, yourself. I know. I'm just saying, like, I, I want to make clear that, like, I had never seen Goonies as a kid, and so I don't have a mm. close relationship to it from a child perspective. And I first watched it maybe four years ago and was just like, oh, my God, these kids are so cute. Oh, my God. <laughs> Someone has to help these children. But had you already um, seen Lord of the Rings? Because I do think that it's by comparison. <laughs> yes. Like, so now you're going in reverse order and you're like, it's like a little Sean Astin. <laughs> like, it's naturally yeah. going to be even it was cuter. Very, it was, yeah. I mean, and I think I saw Lord of the Rings when I was like 12, mm-hmm. and it hit me in that specific, like, adventure world view. And now it's like tiny Sean Astin. Tiny, tiny boys. Like, Fairly tiny, tiny Josh children. Brolin. Who we tiny Brolin. Like, tiny... Slater. I don't know. I, <laughs> I just... They're so sweet and so cute, and I would just, like, lay down my life. Like, I don't know if I think this movie is good, but I look at these kids, and I'm like, I would do anything to protect those little... Like, my maternal instinct goes insane looking at, like, a 12-year-old boy in danger. That guy is always Rudy to me. Even in Lord of the Rings, I was like, what the fuck is Rudy doing in Mordor? It is very funny. I feel like some child actors who continue to be actors as adults, like, their faces change, and they grow in certain ways. And I think Sean Astin... His face is the same, but it is different in Goonies compared to him as an adult, right? And then you get like a Christian Bale where you're like, exact same face, exact same mannerisms, exact same boy. And that's always more jarring to me than someone who has grown into a slightly different oh, like adult Newsies. person. like Newsies? It's just Christian yeah, like Bale's Newsies or like Empire of the Sun. on a little body. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it feels very strange. And he already has fully adult acting choices and mannerisms. Yeah. It's very <laughs> yes. weird. It's weird. But he's a weird guy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think that Khan, the author, shares your feelings, Hannah. He seems to be, like, very precious and uh, about all of the kids. But specifically, since he's in the head of Mikey, he makes him, like, unimpeachably virtuous, which is fine. I mean, he's such a nice kid. But we get this passage early on where the truffle shuffle happens. And uh, it says, Chunk's face fell, but he sighed and lifted his shirt to show his pudge. And then he did the twist, so it all jiggled around. This cracked mouth up like it always did, but it just depressed me even more. I mean, Chunk was a stand-up kind of guy, and it wasn't like mouth didn't have stuff we could laugh at, or me for that matter. It's like, I didn't pick that up from the movie, that he was like, I am regretful that this is occurring. (laughs) I and it's not a twist. To, like, I'll cut it out. It's a roll. It's a gentle roll from top to bottom. <laughs> yeah, I, I think maybe the author is gleaning more subtext from the script than Donner got out of the child performances, which is not a knock against the kids. I think one of the reasons that this movie works so well is that the kids feel like kids. But yeah, there's not a lot of subtlety, like, you know, under their, their little... The, well, the, yes. Sorry, to the degree on, that I sometimes don't even know... Mikey is always likable in making choices that someone with a good heart would make, but uh, it's just a difference between the media. I'm still mystified because there's only so much screen time and so many kids and characters with plots going on. 
I don't always fully understand why Mikey does what he does. I'm going to be honest, I, I still like this movie quite a lot, but I don't know exactly what it's our time down here means. <laughs> Under the well in the caves? Our time? Like I, I, it's, that's not like a home run of a, of a line to have a movie on. But, uh, and then in the, I just think through novelization, that's your opportunity as a novelizer, right? Is to dig in, zoom in, expand out, and put in. Like, it's so interesting, especially stuff set in modern day. Like, I bet this author, I mean, I could be right, I could be wrong, but if I were this author, I would definitely take the opportunity of Mikey's brain as it exists to express whatever I want about childhood, right? I, I've been meaning to write a little treatise on that feeling of childhood boredom. Oh, I'm doing that Goonies thing. I'll make Mikey think that. Um, there's actually <laughs> a lot of space in between the lines, you know? So, yeah, I, I mean, I think it just goes to show the novelization is a totally creative act as well and in, in a whole different medium, which is, yeah. I, I already have more respect for novelizations, so good job, <laughs> That's what I, I think that if anyone actually presses play on our episodes, they gain respect. You just really gotta <laughs> fight for them to do that. Because I always imagine, I have not read many novelizations, maybe one Star Trek novel, but I always imagine they just wrotely described in pretty language the things that happen from a third-person perspective, but this is not that at all. Well, those are out there. I mean, yeah, Johnny and Hannah, would you agree that this is one of the most liberty-taking novelizations we've read? I would disagree. I think oh. that... Well, I think that this uh, very accurately tells the story of the movie uh, in a way that, like, I always knew what line of dialogue was coming next. And, like, I mean, it really hits the beats of the story, sometimes a little out of order, uh, and it does add a lot of flavor to you know from the child perspective but i do think that it it doesn't uh add much that's not there on the page including the octopus sequence which was filmed for the movie but cut because the octopus looked terrible but i i, I think uh, no Hannah, i you go. agree enough to say i don't they don't feel like liberties to me <clears throat> like there's clearly expansion and there's richness and there's more happening here than is perhaps seen on the screen but they don't feel like like sometimes we read novelization you're like well i don't know where you got that from that came out of left field and this all feels justified by the text you know what i mean like it feels um true to the movie i watched all of these character internal ideas like eh, they don't feel like liberties i guess i would say but i do think this is a good novelization <laughs> i don't I'm just agree. imagining like sorry go. superman novelization where he just rips lois in half and you're like <laughs> what is going on <laughs> what is the biggest liberty you think you've encountered doing this podcast where you were like i can't believe they did that well we almost have one to rule out like the once upon a time in hollywood because tarantino is so high powered that like his novelization didn't even play by the same rules. Like, he didn't really have people, I assume, mm. telling him you can't do that the way most writers would. So aside from mm. him, what, what do we think, guys? I mean, I think for me, like, the t I mean, you just mentioned it, but, like, the Taxi Driver one just has, like, it is what happens in the movie and about, like, 17 other major plot points that are not in the movie and are not referred to in the movie and don't exist, but are interesting. Um, so that one just feels like a totally different exercise, sort of. The taxi driver one literally has the, the character who is the point of view narrator 
has a song stuck in his head and it'll just be like he'll just be like anyway so i was walking down the street and then mary had a little like it'll be like in the middle of like other sentences Mm -hmm. so that is pretty wild even though hannah you maintain it's pretty close to the movie i think that in the abyss the fact that Mm. like a third of the book is told from the perspective of the aliens is fucking crazy it is crazy i agree with you that's a pretty big liberty to take well, because the whole point is they're the ultimate unknowable thing that we can't <laughs> comprehend or communicate with or ever understand. That's what the movie's yes. about. Yeah, Orson Scott Card <laughs> was like, what if you knew everything? Page. All of the things. That's what what you just I like that it. you're like, there's an abyss. Want me to tell you exactly what's in it and at the bottom of it? We we have a bunch of like info from the things in the abyss. <laughs> <laughs> what was the thing trying to do in this moment? We know. There you go. Yeah, but that is, that book is enriched by those, those liberties. I, I also didn't mean liberties in this case in any negative way. I totally agree with you that everything that's done in this book is in character. And I think that's what's amazing about it. I mean, we'll get to it, but there is a part of this book. Who knows if it's from the script or not? I... I it's hard to imagine a version of the movie that has it all. There's a version of this book where they're just floating down a river and like eight characters monologue in a row. Eight characters are like, <laughs> are you guys wondering what my whole deal is? Here's my whole deal. Yeah. And then someone else goes, that reminds me of that wraps up my me. whole deal. What was that, Hannah? Yeah, I mean, it very much is like Data's like, man, I hope I invent something really important for humankind later in life. And everyone's like, we believe in you. <laughs> and it's nice, but like, there's no way that that has a place in a movie. Sure. Everyone gets their own little dramatic moment. Michael, you mentioned the it's our time scene. And like, it, it I, I, I will say that uh, the I think that the script is cute and that the movie is great, but it does have these beats where it's like, oh, this the movie thinks that this is more important than it is. Uh, the one that I always think of is the uh, the wishing well. It's like, this was my wish, and I, I'm taking it back because it didn't come true. And it's like, okay, Corey, your little Oscar clip moment. Uh, it, uh, I, I just don't think, as great as the kids are, I don't know if anyone could really sell every element of the script in, in a way that it deserved. And it's not the acting, it's the fact that there's so much plotting and so little time that like, that Feldman moment, especially, you're like, where'd that come from? We had no, we had, there was no ramp up to that. I didn't know he was mad about that. Yeah, (laughs) aren't you the funny one? Like that character's whole deal is that he's just like funny, kind of a dick. And to give him like a moment of like, well, my dreams are not coming true because I'm poor. It's It's just like, oh, bro. It's like his character just saying, also, I'm complex, but I don't want to take up a lot of your time. Yeah, especially compared to what is complex about Mouth is his his, like kind of romance with the girl, Mm -hmm. with one of the girls. Um, That's what's a nice element of complexity to that character. I don't need that one little moment. It's very bizarre. I agree. Sorry, I was looking for a thing. What was the moment you don't need, Hannah? (laughs) The one we were talking about. Taking the wish back. Taking the wish back. Oh, oh, okay. And then I'm, I'm, I'm caught up. I thought you added a new twist. Much the nicer there. to have the like, thank you for saving, for offering to save my life. Thank you. Did you say thank you? Say it again. Like that's mm-hmm. much cuter yes. and more in line with that character. I feel like, and what we want to know about him. I respect you. I'm sorry that I agreed. Dipped out for a moment. You don't. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, the the wishing scene had me thinking uh that guy that was on the date with andy that was such an asshole his wish was definitely some sad sack wish about losing her right i thought 
I mean, in the movie, they imply that his wish is to touch her boobs. Oh. Right? I thought it was just he really wanted that jacket back. He was like, <laughs> oh. And then his wish he came gets true. It. Mm. Yeah, he must have a pure heart. Please let me throw Josh Brolin into the woods again. He just wants to do uh, it that again. Al- yeah, he also gives a, like, a Homer Screaming Nerds level. <laughs> title of the movie i've never heard the title of a movie set in the movie as hard as this guy yells goonies it's one of the most unbelievable parts of the movie that that uh this like bully character would be like in my rage i will validate the nickname you prefer he respects that they identify as goonies (laughs) um okay so the thing i shut hannah out for uh that i just found is there's a great passage starting on 11 going into 12, and it says, uh, do, 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 do. It's describing the complex mechanism that, that opens the front gate. They, they talk about all the things, and there's a bowling ball, and there's a sprinkler, and whatever. And it says, Goonies are into stuff like that. I think it's because we can't control anything else about our lives or the world, like nuclear war or famine or toxic dumps or where we might be living next week or what's for supper. We can control every last detail about some contraption we build, or joke we tell, or between meal snack that we make. And I like this for a few reasons, which is like, this is very true to my experience of childhood. I relate a lot to the speech, Michael, that you don't relate to, which is like the the speech about this is our place down here. To me, I never had an underground adventure where I was like, this is my place down here subterraneanly. But you're you're swapping place for time. He says time. That's specifically what makes it not make much sense. Place would make sense. <laughs> okay. That makes sense. I think he means like the adventure that we're Child- having down here is like He means like childhood time. is our time. But then mm. that's not localized down here. That's a time. I'm being pedantic, but it's <laughs> bothered me since I was born. I just hated when I was a kid, I hated that I, like, wasn't an adult, I didn't have control of things, I, like, had crushes on, like, I was nine, I had, like, a crush on a nine-year-old, and I was like, I can't do anything with that, I can't ask her out, this is awful, I want to just be able to, like, go to the store, why do I have to ask permission to do everything? Like, if I had an experience like this, where I was on some adventure, I would be like, this is my time, this is, like, I have full agency for however long this adventure lasts, and I really like how in that passage... Uh, Mikey's like, yeah, we're, you know, we're goonies. We like to have control of stuff. Like, bullshit thing, bullshit thing. We're about to lose our home. Another bullshit thing. Like, he puts the real thing in the middle. I love that. <laughs> when I saw, watched this kid as a, uh, this movie as a kid, uh, I also uh, had a crush on Andy. So I can relate to making a wish to touch her boob or whatever it was. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah. oh, one uh, of the most successful returns on wish ever now he doesn't like hook up with andy but like most of the time you make a wish and you're like i hope that comes true and then your life goes on she's right there after he makes the wish pretty cool yeah also i didn't realize like in the movie they definitely put the gadget making all on data's shoulders like data is making the gadget so Interesting that they stretched and made it a thing that they're all very much into. Like, now I'm imagining that they grow up to become OK Go. <laughs> like, we all do Rube Goldberg machines is a very specific hobby for children to share. Just 1985. Acceptable. Huge yeah. year for the Rube Goldberg in movies between this and Back oh, to yeah. the Future. <laughs> right, yeah. 
both That's Spielberg true. productions. They probably just recycled the uh, the Erector sets or whatever we used. Mm-hmm. Hannah and Johnny, what do you what, what do you what do you got? I got a million things here. So many things I don't even know where to go. Well, one I know, this thing, is sort of, I have a lot of little notes as well. Yeah, uh, one thing I do always love, and not just with novelizations, but uh, movies, anything, I love when uh, something is about children, but you can see the cracks of, like, you know, the 70-year-old screenwriter shining through. Like, when uh, the kids see the portrait of, uh, of uh, uh, what's his name? I want to say Oswald Cobblepop. That's the penguin. Uh, <laughs> the, the, Chester. No, no, something. the explorer. Co- co- cobble, oh, oh, co- right. Cobblepot or something. Uh, there's Chester and, and then there's what, Chester Willie. Copperpot. That's yeah. it. And uh, and Mikey describes him as looking like Gabby Hayes with a miner's hat. And I'm thinking, Gabby Hayes? I mean, <laughs> yeah. that reference is a little old for your parents, Mikey. I, I mean, who is this kid? Me? I mean, yeah, I, I knew who Gabby Hayes was as a kid because he was in a movie called Nevada City, which was where I grew up. But uh, yeah, I mean, that that was a deep pull. Uh, he also uh, quotes uh, the Frank Capra, uh, Kaufman and Hart movie, uh, You Can't Take It With You, which is like, Okay, that's, uh, you know, so maybe mom likes classic films. He was subjected to that. But yeah, there's a lot of that in this whole book, which, you know, again, not a knock. It amuses me to no end. I think these are weird kids. Oh, definitely. Living slightly weird lives. And I would not be surprised if they're like, all we watch are classic movies. (laughs) We haven't seen a movie that was made in 1983. Like that seems true to the lifestyle that they're all living. Yeah. And that their dad is like, or, you know, Mikey's dad is like a historian. Like, yeah, it feels kind of right that he'd be like, yep, I only do old stuff. Old stuff is my jam. And you pick that up as a kid. Yeah, absolutely. It's just also a great little way for the filmmakers to show what they like. Like in <laughs> Halloween, where on, you know, Halloween night, what what movie are the kids watching? The Thing from Another World. Like, you know, not not a, they're, they're not watching Black Christmas or a more recent scary movie. It's like, no, they're watching a classic. They're watching what John Carpenter would have watched as a kid if mm-hmm. he were being babysat on Halloween. And yeah, I no, I love that. It's, I you know, it's a, it's a way to sneak in your influences. I like that. And then um, I like the hard attempt of like, here's what kids are like. Like um, there's one, page 19, they're all kind of goofing around. And there's a line that says, Brand made a dirty joke, but I guess I won't tell it right now. <laughs> it's like such a little kid moment. I'm just like, I heard it, but I know it's not appropriate. And I like those little, I like those touches in both directions. It gives those kids like, they're not just sort of like basic I- idealized kids. They have like different little interests and little knowledge bases and little things that they feel. And I, I love that stuff. There was something funny. I, I don't good. have it exactly pinpointed, but there's something funny where Khan is like, when the statue breaks, he's like, the stat- a piece fell off the statue. Mom was going to be so mad. And then like the next page is like, the little man, if you could even still call him a man. And it's like, oh, he's like making the dick joke if you can get it. He's being mm-hmm. like, if you're someone who would get a joke about, like, losing manhood, then you will understand what part of the statue fell off. But if you are not, you shan't. Yeah, coupled with the, that's my mom's favorite part. is <laughs> <laughs> really funny. <laughs> they, there is a, a reference uh, uh, around that point where he says something about, like, Data, whatever Data's real name is, and he goes... Yeah, that was Data's paper name. That's what his parents called him, which I don't think comes up in the movie. It's a very funny detail that they have a name for, like, 
yeah, that's not like really who we are, but that's like <coughs> what society calls us. That's what's on the certificate. I feel like there's a lot of little details uh, like that in the book that I like they might be in the movie. They might have been in the script, but uh, things I love that I I don't think I ever uh, connected with before. I love that. Um, I think it's Chunk, of course. Yes. Uh, the, the little Jewish Chunk. Uh, instead of uh, w- when they're all praying for their lives, instead of making the sign of the cross, he apparently makes a star of David. Is that in the movie? <laughs> That's great. That's such a great little uh, character thing. Uh, there was something else. Um, Oh, uh, someone who watched the movie more recently than I have. Is the whole speech about uh, Mikey's dad going on, let's make a deal in the movie? Oh, that's, no. That goes on forever and is so specific. Okay, I was I, I was acting like, I thought I was going crazy because everything else I remember, the, uh, the, the sort of backstories, the, you know, dramatic backstories. But yeah, that was a weird one. Uh, Hannah. It's so weird because it pops up at the wishing well where he's like, yeah. should we... Like, there are moments where they have to decide which door to go through. And basically, Michael, for you, like, Mikey tells a story. He's like, oh, thank you. Okay. Um, Look, a couple of years ago, my mom and dad got on that big game show. Remember, Brand? Mom spent a month making those funny costumes. She was a giant egg. Blah, blah, blah. When we got there, they put us in the big audience with all the other people in funny costumes. Um, And then some dude with lipstick and sprayed hair comes down the stairs. He walks up to us, right? First, he makes mom guess how much toilet bowl cleaner costs, and she gets it right. And then he makes my dad guess what a jar of ragu spaghetti sauce costs, and he gets that right. And then he asks my dad, is the big prize behind door number one, door number two, or door number three? Now, my dad's lucky number was always two. He got married on August 2nd. He got his job on June 2nd. He's got two kids, et cetera, et cetera. Um, okay, okay, we got the point, said Data. He took door number two. No, that's the weird part. For some reason, he took door number three, and the game show guy screams, congratulations, you've just won 100,000 toothpicks. 100,000 toothpicks. And they were all staring at me, waiting. So basically, like, his dad doesn't follow his instinct and gets the wrong thing and loses out on the big prize. And Mikey uses this to say, like, don't we all feel that we should pursue the treasure instead of going home? Yeah, I, in this moment, <laughs> it's a great way to dramatize that. It, it's a, a fun little thing about how you know not only are we unlucky in life, and here's another example of us being unlucky, but here is a specific and weirdly specific situation in which if we had just mm-hmm. listened to our brains and uh, followed our instincts, then you know we we would have yeah. been millionaires, and now we know to do that. Yeah, they were never going to live on easy street. They blew their chance. And you know why? Because they didn't follow their instincts. They tried to outguess themselves. They thought that what they knew in their hearts and what they knew to be true for them couldn't be the door that the riches were behind. So they chose the door they thought they should choose instead, and they blew it. This is it, guys. On Monday, our living rooms turn into golf holes. This is our last chance, and I don't want to blow it because we're too scared to go for it. Which is good good that's a good argument takes a long time to get there i feel i'm gonna take a little dig at this i i like it a lot but i feel like if you're trying to tell a story that's essentially uh in a moment when my father should have had confidence he didn't have confidence and and clearly if he had had confidence things would have gone better uh Something where it's about random choice is is not the best example you can put forward, right? Like it's it's, it's about instinct. Yeah. it's about belief. Andrew, mm. <laughs> and does the book really follow through on that theme? Because I would say the movie's more about 
the power of friendship. <laughs> like I didn't specifically get from the film, um, be true to your instincts. I got that like goodness wins out and a kind heart will make pirate jewels magically appear in the path <laughs> of your life. Um, which is the theme of a lot of, uh, films of this era for children. And I find that so funny given that it's also part of the plot that his parents uh, led their lives and that didn't happen for them. So what does that imply? They don't have good hearts. They weren't goonies. It wasn't their time up there. Like I, you know, it's just a funny thing to me, but um, yeah. So does the book really hone in on instinct? That's what it's all about. Following your instinct. Is that the major theme? No. Uh, Yeah. I think the problem is with the book and the movie is that it doesn't really know what the message is. There's like three and a half messages. Yeah. There's a lot of them stuffed in there and it's like, just pick one, but no, it's, it's all over the place, which, you know, has its charms as well. But, uh, uh, yeah, I, I don't think it knows what it wants to be. It's like, well, it wants to just be like a fun adventure for kids, but then it feels obliged to be, uh, you know, like, uh, follow your instincts, but also accept yourself for who you are, but also childhood is fleeting and magical. It just yeah. seems to be covering all its bases. All of these things that, like, now bother me a bit in terms of its structure, it certainly didn't when I was a kid, because I just kept thinking, like, oh, I want to do that. I want to go through catacombs under my town, which I, I forgot to add when I was describing, you know, my, my, affiliate, my, my affiliation with this book uh, before. Uh, we had in my hometown uh, a very similar system that was sort of running through the you know there were underground tunnels all through my town that was like you know the the little local deer creek flowed into and there was this locked iron door that like you had you know you could sneak into and you could go through and all these tunnels and uh, a bunch of teenagers and and really teens uh, robbed a bunch of liquor from a local italian restaurant that way uh, because like every restaurant or every uh, uh business on this on our one main street uh had a basement that had access to this uh you know this this catacomb thing just like in the movie it was that's kind of, wild yeah. i grew up next to a giant labyrinth with david bowie at the middle so i totally get what you're talking <laughs> it's about it's so Funny that if your town has underground tunnels, you're either going to experience the Goonies or Stephen King's It. Well, yeah. And that's kind of the only option. It must be right? said, Hannah. Sewer the- orgy or a magical adventure <laughs> that you'll remember for the rest of your lives. One or the other. Why not both? <laughs> I was always afraid to go in there just because I'm thinking like, you know, best case scenario, there's a monster, you know, or or it's like just some really weird ex-hippie burnout who's living in there. And it's like, I don't want to meet either. Hannah, it must be said, though, that like this book and movie are the the it scenario, but like played as if it's fun because this is like a horrifying they keep going deeper. Yeah, what if you encountered some of your worst fears in the entire world and you had to do that to get through I'm it? Really I want to know who played the corpse that falls on Chunk because what an amazing day on set where they paint you gray <laughs> and they're like, get in this fridge with this child actor. Now, 
Because you know they can't, it, like, it looks too real. There's no way it's a dummy. Now go completely limp, and he's going <laughs> to scream and thrash around and just like, yeah, mash your face against his face. Go completely limp. And it's a really funny shot, but just thinking about them filming, it's so weird. Yeah, these kids have a horrible time, objectively. Um, real criminals are trying to murder them while they're on the run from bullies also trying to murder them. And their parents are getting evicted, and there's skeletons everywhere. Like, it's <laughs> a horrible time. In the movie, it feels like much more lighthearted yeah. through the entire thing. There are points in this book where they're like, I guess we're going to die down here. There's no way out. They're like, like toys going into the Like they get on yeah. a little boat and they're floating down like a little stream. And they're just like, we don't know if this lets out anywhere. But if it doesn't, we can't go back. We'll yes. die. Yes. Yeah. The, the organ sequence always bothered me as a child. Because Andy mm. plays one more wrong note and it's six little children's corpses at the bottom of this. Review. When data yeah. falls through that hole, which mm-hmm. apparently is the right way to go, but there's pokey spikes at the bottom, and it's like, thank God he was able to stop himself from falling, and the rest of them were able to easily, carefully lower themselves like, down. What would be the oh my god if they came back and they're like, we found jewels, we believe in ourselves, uh, Sloth is also here now, but... Andy is impaled in a cave in the dark. She's dead. Forget about Andy. How do we move I mean, on from this point now? We have jewels. I'm going to remind you we have jewels. What? A, yeah. It's just they, the they moment, got so lucky. I wish I could find it now. I don't know what that moment I is it. it. The yeah. moment when Data falls through the hole and they all think he's dead. The passage in the book, Mikey's like, this is the worst experience of my life. I'm so, he's like absolutely devastated. He's like, I can't believe my friend is dead for real. How awful. Um, he's like, I'll never forget him. This is something that's going to live with me for the rest of my life in a way that feels like super heavy compared yeah. to how it's played in the movie. And then they find out he's not dead and they're like, back to the adventure. Oh yes, it's yeah. Okay. Yeah, Michael, earlier you compared this uh, to Home Alone. And like Home Alone is a movie that also like, you know, lots of characters should be dead throughout that. But like, it's just consistent enough with the tone of we're going to say that all of this violence is cartoon violence and none of it is fatal. None of it is actually going to hurt anyone. Whereas in Goonies, it's like, Oh no, this feels like uh, real life and death stakes, but then also I invented a thing that uses chattering teeth that can spring forth and grab rocks and and save me and uh, that can is, pull my yeah. weight. A slinky attached to plastic teeth can <laughs> clink into the rock and pull me up like Batman. That was so hard to buy as an adult watching the movie. Yeah, really, yeah, really, you gotta hard. pick one. Yeah. None of these things that we're mentioning that are dangerous are what I find horrifying about this scenario. To me, it's like, I mean, like, I I do a lot of hiking in, like, the Rockies, right? And, like, you'll just, like, go up a path. It's a nice path. It's relatively safe, but you're just, it's hard. You're going up, 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 up. And there'll be, like, a tunnel or a cave or whatever, and there'll be, it's fully open. No gate. Nothing. And just signs all over it that are, like... 60 feet into this cave, you would die. Do not enter. And it's either because there's a gigantic drop-off or, as they mention in the book, there's, like, noxious gases, right? And it just feels nightmarish to me that they keep, after the well part, after the wishing well part, they keep going further and further in. And this isn't a situation, not to belittle your lived experience, Johnny, but this isn't a situation where, like, the catacombs are known. They are, like, 
uh, these people whose house we're in didn't even know this shit was down here, and we're just exploring it. And then in the book, like I said, and we'll we'll talk about the specific revelations, but they have time to do like eight monologues in a row about their past because there's a whole part of the book where they're floating down the river and it's not fun. They're in complete darkness. Sounds horrifying. Just on a raft being like, we don't know where the river goes. We also don't think it goes anywhere. We think we're in like a giant underground lake and we'll just float until we starve. It's uh, bone chilling to me and I'm not even thinking about the dangers that they encounter. All of it is bone chilling. It's a scary situation. And they're gone for, like, over a day. Yes. Yeah. Right? I mean, like, it's it's very important to me that at the end they emerge and the police are like, oh, thank God we found you. And their parents are like, we were terrified. You were gone forever. Because uh, they have been gone long enough for it to really be scary. Yes. Uh, we even get in the epilogue sort of a, uh, a, a headline from the local paper that like, oh, those six children who were reported missing have been found safely. And it's like, oh, yeah, this would have been a big deal if, if uh, you know, night falls and none of the kids uh, can be accounted for. You send your teenage son to go find your slightly younger son and they all go missing forever. <laughs> yeah. Call I mean, Ron Howard, the get the 13 lives people thing. in play. And we got and some it, people stuck in a cave. I'm and it you. aligns with uh, with the Fratelli, uh, uh, you know, the escape criminals. And and when Chunk tries to tell the sheriff about this, he's like, ah, yeah, you and your stories. He's like, I don't know. This all sounds like it's lining up. They're in this tiny town and they're like, so you know how the only thing that's happened in the town is these killers escape from jail? My friends are missing. Yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> like, go home, kid. I mean, I can't imagine if this didn't work out exactly as it works out. And that sheriff is like, wow, I fucked up <laughs> the one oh, time yeah. I should have listened to that goddamn kid. Well, Hannah skipped over uh, a, a, an inquisition that I had in the intro, uh, you know, in addition to not wanting to perform my terrific 13 lives jokes. Uh, I know somebody out there really howled at that Is joke. the connection just that it's about people stuck in a cave? Children. Is that it? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. I think it's a pretty specific genre. It's enough film. elements for a joke to exist. Thank I, I you, agree. Michael. Yeah. It is enough <laughs> elements. I'm <laughs> not looking at it being elements. like, it's like 13 lives because they're human. Ron Howard is going to love this joke. And Ron, if you're listening still, uh, please rate and review. I think I think past guest Brett Arnold called it his favorite movie of the year. So if you're listening and you didn't laugh, we're done. <laughs> anyway. Do your additional bit. Andrew. Oh, it's not a bit. It's just another thing you skipped in the <laughs> intro, which is I mm-hmm. question, like, is the premise of this movie a coincidence or is it something that makes um, sequential sense? Does it make sense that the labyrinth of terrors that has treasure in it is under murderer's house or are those two elements I think the that real are question is do the fratellis own that restaurant yeah. at all or are they simply using that building as a hideout not, and i have no, i'm not always thought it's the latter oh i am i, I it's never made any sense to me it's like right. it, I, I think mikey does acknowledge that the restaurant is like a seasonal one. So it's like, oh, so it was empty so they could hide in there. But I don't know. Then like, you know, Mama Fratelli also makes a plate of fish surprise, which, you know, she, she knows her way around the kitchen. I, I don't know. It, it is odd. Yeah. So is your question, 
was the tunnel there and they built the restaurant on top of it? My question is basically there's two danger elements to the story. One is cavern of adventures underneath a restaurant. Other one is family of criminals. And is it just a complete coincidence that the family of criminals lives on the cavern of secrets? I don't think they live there, but yes, I think it's a coincidence. Okay. I think the movie indulges heavily in serendipity. It's also a coincidence <laughs> that they're getting evicted right at this moment, and they find the map right at this moment, on uh, today of all days. And I would argue the biggest coincidence of all is that you find a treasure map, and it's true. It's legit. It leads to real treasure, and no one has found that treasure or removed it. It's still there. Yeah, the town never developed and, and dug up <laughs> right. a- around those caves. It's like, what? Well, yeah, it's just been sitting there this whole time. There is a part of this book where uh, one of the Fratelli brothers uh, hears that the kids have gone into the caverns underneath the house and whatever, and and he's like, oh, of course, the treasure of One-Eyed Willie. I've also heard of that. I'm just interested in topics like that. And I thought, great opportunity to connect these two things that Khan just didn't take. Mm -hmm. Right, it could easily have been like... um bootlegging happened through the caves they operated out of a front that was that restaurant and that so it's always been a hotbed of crime and used as a cover and that's why the fratellis are there like you could do these things but um they don't care about that as evidenced (laughs) by the fact that the pirate ship sails away at the end and you're like how did it get out of the cave cavern system how indeed which also raises the question how did it get into the cavern system yeah they don't care these are all holes i think they do answer how it got into the cavern system oh okay It it got black Blasted in, so like someone was shooting at it, and it was in like an overhang of some sort, and then the cannonballs did, uh, made a rock avalanche, and those closed it into like pre-existing caves. Ah, okay, fair enough. How he gets out is a huge question. <laughs> yeah. I don't think so. But because the whimsy there, of it there's all. There's that shot Piloted where the entire no wall is crumbling, nothing. right? No, no, but I'm saying who? Oh, who? Who made the ship go? <laughs> oh, one I, I think is just floating. The octopus gets out onto the ship, puts on a little octopus pirate hat, and then, you know, is like, you know, steering the ship with its eight legs. It's a really cool moment that they, that they well, filmed, but it's not in the The movie. novelization makes vaguely clear. Mm. It's that One-Eyed Willie had like a lot of foresight into how people would mistreat his corpse. Yeah. And one of those seems to be, and now the boat floats away and nobody gets any more treasure. That was one of his contingency plans. Like, that's a trap yeah. in and of itself. Well, I, yeah, I always sure. thought that, like, oh, well, now that the boat's out, they can go get the rest of the treasure instead of relying on what little they still had in the marble bag or whatever yeah, it was. Yeah, the boat's because full I always of treasure. Thought, like, yeah, it's like, do these kids, all these families have to split just this tiny amount of jewels, which, you know, it's probably a, a hefty sum, but can it save all of their houses? Uh, so, yeah, I always thought that when the ship is sailing off into the sunset, someone says, like, oh, let's go get some motorboats and go out there and get the rest of the treasure and... Uh, yeah. Hannah, I don't want to lose my current PDF bookmark, but can you can you read the epilogue news item about the ship? Uh. Um, yes. Reports of an unusual unmarked ship sighted off the coast of Astoria last Sunday night have continued coming in all week. Flying an old skull and crossbones insignia, it eluded Coast Guard craft as heavy fog prevented further pursuit after sunset, which feels like ghost intervention. Yes, yes definitely. 
How could Officials a feel ship it may be and- one of the vessels used by a local drug ring to smuggle narcotics into the area, um, which is funny to imagine using like a big rig sailing ship to smuggle drugs. An empty, unmaintained ship from 100 years ago, crewed by no one, eluded <laughs> the Coast Guard. They could this not the find it. This the ghost of one-eyed Willie. <laughs> yeah. I'm just imagining That definitely a seems, the book even more I th- Sorry, go implies some kind of supernatural element to me. I'm just agreeing that it feels like it's hinting that there's metaphysics involved. You know, this whole story to me is so like heightened and playful and whimsical and supernatural Mm -hmm. in its own way that if then you were like, yes, Mikey's soul connection with One-Eyed Willie is true because that skeleton be a ghost. (laughs) I'd be like, you got it, man. Yeah, like if One-Eyed Willie saluted him as a skeleton as the ship sailed away, you'd be like, okay. Hannah, I feel that the book is pretty explicit Mm -hmm. that, like, uh, well, explicit is the wrong word. I I gotta own that. I think the book is pretty intentionally implicit about there being a ghost presence with all with all the talk of Mikey being like I feel like the spirit of Willie's like living inside me and then I I think he really does pilot the ship out and we're meant to believe that and I think the passage you read which for the listener the entire epilogue is just like different news snippets uh wrapping up plot lines and and they are better written than the news opening I have to give them that but I, I think that that part that you just read definitely suggests that a ghost is piloting a ship around and He's a ghost because we can tell because he has command of weather and he's like bringing in fog around him to keep the Coast Guard away. I think that's definitely what Khan's going for. I like that. Wouldn't you be in mortal fear if you were the Goonies? You're like, he's back and we took his treasure. (laughs) No, because the Goonies respected his treasure. But Mikey's like, no, no, no. no. That ghost likes me. Trust me. I can tell. I'm cool with that ghost. Yeah. The whole deal that, like, it all falls apart for the Fratellis when they try to steal One-Eyed Willie's specific pile of gold. <laughs> Which, And the Goonies yeah. taking whatever else they wanted was cool with him. And that's a scene that's in the movie that, again, the kids aren't present for. So we get it in uh, an epilogue where Mikey says, oh, one last thing. I read the police report, and apparently this is what happened to the Fratellis. They tried to take the wrong part of the gold, and, you know, they were punished for it. Um, and uh, so the epilogue the sort of gives us that. police report. Yeah, it, well, that. it gives us that G.I. Joe ending where it's like, where he literally says, uh, you don't get what you thought you were getting. You get what you ought to have got. But if you take what someone's trying to give you while you were asking for what you thought you wanted, you end up getting a lot more than you knew there was in the first place. What really taught me that. It's like, you can no just say the battle. Fuck around and find out. We've shortened <laughs> that into it. No, but the other part of that is that he's going fuck around and find out. But he's also like. I was chosen to receive the treasure. He wanted to give it. Yeah. I mean, it does. And I think he, there's points throughout the story. And I can't remember if this is clear in the movie where Mikey's like, look, we've made it farther than anybody else. We've earned this. And Willie respects that. Yeah. (laughs) He likes us. He respects that we solved his puzzles and he will let us take some treasure. And Mikey if goes Andy up to was skeleton. a little worse at playing piano, he would have happily murdered all of us. Yeah, that, yes. That's how much Willie loves kids. I'm just seeing Micah ta- or Mikey talking to skeleton reanimated Willie on the ship and being like, we're outsiders like you. You wanted us to have your treasure, right? And he just oh, even stabs more, him in the throat Michael. with a cutlass, man. In the book, when they find Willie's skeleton, 
Mikey realizes that Willie also had asthma and was treating it with like an homemade inhaler. Well, there's the bones of an inhaler there on the table, yeah. Oh, I'm glad that's in the movie too. I had forgotten. It's in the book and they learn that One-Eyed Willie was born without an eye and he just made the most of it. And Mikey takes this as a lesson for himself too. And he gouges his eye out in solidarity. (laughs) No, he has a- That always scared me as a kid. (laughs) I am yours. Yeah, it, Lily. it always freaked me out as a kid when they take up his eye patch and there's just bone there. And I, I always thought like, wait, if you don't have an eye, do your bones just <laughs> grow seal shut? And, uh, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, that, that disturbed me because I, I, I did have a, a friend who, who had a glass eye. And, uh, and yeah, it, it just filled me with questions. I like that the book is explicit about how that affects Mikey's worldview. <laughs> that he's like taking all this in and saying like, mm-hmm, I was right to say we should have done this. I still want to read I've that proven correct. police report that's like, three dead Caucasians pirate ship took wrong gold. <laughs> like that is not a comprehensible, how are you going to process that? The courts are not ready for this case. There's a lot of things that make the, uh, the, the, the news, the local paper, the morning edition, uh, that you wonder, would this really be reported on? I, I, can I read the, the final yeah, passage of the book? It's my uh, favorite one. Yes. Oh, I, I, I don't mean to steal it, but this amused me to no end. Uh, morning edition, Saturday, December 30th. Mr. and Mrs. Jerry Cohen are pleased to announce the bar mitzvah of their recently adopted son, Jason Sloth Cohen, at Temple Beth Solomon today at 11 a.m. Reception to follow at the Goondock Recreation Center, formerly Hillside Country Club. So it's like, wow, that, that's a lot of epilogue just you in got a one sloth paragraph. mitzvah. Yeah. Sloth gets a bar mitzvah. He is fully adopted. Uh, the, the, the country club is no more. It, it, it's pretty great. It answers L'chaim. so many questions I didn't even know I had. I, guys, I have to talk about my favorite through line in the entire book. Oh, by it all means. It begins on page 22. Uh, they're looking through the junk. Uh, suddenly, this wild rip of lightning tore over the skylight and a thunder crack in its shadow. And in a second, rain was spattering the glass and throwing funny patterns on all of us. Okay, you guys saw it, I said. Now let's get out of here. What's the matter? Scared again, said Brand? Yeah, just like you in the elevator, I answered. I knew that would get him. He hated to be reminded of this one time we were on an elevator that got stuck between floors. And he, like, totally freaked out. And I just got on the elevator phone and sort of ran the show. I mean, I think we've all got something like that to deal with, but Brand sees it otherwise. He decided someone must have put some poison gas into the ventilation system, and that's why he blew his cool. And I was just immune to the stuff or something. Anyway, he made me promise not to tell. So when I mentioned the elevator this time, he got me in another headlock and whispered, You shut up about that elevator. You understand? Huh? And this keeps coming up. I like that Brand has... Claustrophobia. It's like a nice element for him. Especially because in the movie, I feel like Bran doesn't really have a thing. He's just there because he follows the kids there. Like, there needs to be an older kid. I guess he has a little crush on Andy, but he doesn't even get to kiss her. She kisses Mikey. Uh, They kiss at the end. They kiss at the end. Uh, So, yeah, it's just something to give to Bran other than, um, you know, he's he's the oldest. Gotta fill pages. He's emotionally intelligent. Books longer than a movie. (laughs) (laughs) Brand is a good brother, and I want to stand by that. He loves his little brother, and he's taking care of him. 
And the claustrophobia thing is like a nice element where then Mikey gets to step up and be the hero of the story multiple times throughout the story when his big brother kind of can't do it. Yeah, it's a really good addition that like fits with the existing dynamic in the movie. I'm trying to find the second time it comes up because it's excellent. Um, What page is it? Hold on. 82. Mm-hmm. Okay, so on 82, do, 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 uh, I'm going to find it. Okay, here we go. Uh, the, he's having some sort of fight with Brand, Mikey is. Uh, Brand says, all we keep doing is going lower. Where are we going? Where's this leading? All I know is this place is getting too small. I was near the rear with Andy. Uh-oh, I whispered. He's getting that elevator look in his eyes. What do you mean, elevator? I moved up close to her. Even after all this, she smelled awful good. Some kind of perfume none of the other girls wore. Made me want to talk softer than usual. Me and Bran got stuck in this elevator once, I explained. For five hours. He leaves out the first time that it was for five hours. It was okay at first, but then he started getting closet trophy photo. Claustrophobia, she said. She was even smarter than Bran. Yeah, and he freaked out, lost total control, started spinning in circles, his arms whipping around, like a break dancer on Fast Forward. I had to climb on the elevator roof so I wouldn't get hurt. Okay, so she says, he says this, and then uh, he gives Brand his inhaler. Brand takes a hit off the inhaler, and then Mikey thinks, this is the, I love this, Mikey thinks, I don't know why I said it, it just came out. She looked so petrified and smelled so good. I just sort of had this urge to protect her. This is him asking, like, do you want to hold my hand? I really wanted her to like me, I guess. Not that she would. Not someone with braces and asthma. But still, that's what I wanted. I think that's why I ratted on Brand about the elevator thing. So she'd think less of him. So as soon as I said all that stuff, I felt real bad about breaking my promise to Brand. So I felt even worse about myself. Which made me think Andy must feel worse about me, too. So the whole thing kind of backfired, which made me remember... That's why it wasn't such a good idea to break promises, even if I thought I had a good reason. I fucking love this paragraph. He's like, let me share a little secret with you. Now that makes me feel bad. Now that makes my perception of you change. Now that makes me feel differently about how you feel about me. It's really concise. It's really, I'm paranoid like that. I loved it. Mm -hmm. I also like it because he's wrong about her. He's like, I thought it would make her like Brand less, but it makes her like Brand more because it makes him vulnerable. And she's like, oh no, poor Brand. (laughs) Oh, to be a 13-year-old again. What a crazy time. Here's uh, the description of Sloth from the book where I feel like Khan really sidesteps explaining what his deal is. Because, as you say, Michael, it's just invented. He doesn't have, like, an ailment that seems real. And if you try to really dig in and explain him, it gets really... It would be depressing. Right. And they're not... They're trying to avoid that. I mean, you don't want to... I mean, it's 1985, so they're probably thinking about all this less, but you also don't want to put any real condition on it because you then probably wouldn't be getting it right. Right? Right. Yeah. Um, So here it says, uh, He was bald except for a little top knot, and his head just wasn't the right shape. High up were two partly formed ears more like dried apricots that had gone bad. His eyes weren't the same size or color, and they were at two different levels on his face, one near where it was supposed to be, and one down along the side of his nose. And his nose was all wrong too, kind of off-center and squished, like he'd fallen on his face and it was made of clay. But his mouth was real sad. 
Sad. Sad. Sad. I like that uh, Mikey just, because that's a Mikey passage where he's like, wanders mm-hmm. down and sees Sloth. Uh, once again, just an example of Khan being like, Mikey is the most empathetic person imaginable. He sees something that like, he, it would be understandable for him in the moment to be crazy freaked out by Sloth. But even when he's freaked out, he's like, I could see there was a deep sadness to the man. Yeah, compared to how Chunk describes him, which is both as a hulky kind of guy, but his head is bent out of shape and his eyes are in the wrong places and he has these Venusian ears and a patch of hair at the top of his pointy skull and a nose like marzipan and rubber lips with spit dripping down his chin and crooked yellow teeth and I am totally grossed out. I scream. I gag. Like a very different perspective. Even though Chunk very quickly turns around and is like, he's okay actually. (laughs) I would like to hit Mikey's asthma where he just decides not to have asthma anymore. Um, As if it is a psychosomatic expression of his. But in the book he really Yeah, no, for sure. But in the movie, it's sort of like, I'm good. And it's like a throwaway joke at the very end. There's and a passage And you assume here. he'll like, go buy another one. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. There's a passage where they're on the ship and he's, he goes to take a puff, I think, and then is like, wait a second. Um, it made me realize, though, how different it was down here from up there back home. Back there, we worried about stuff like flu and tetanus shots and gas mileage and excedrin headaches and stuff. Down here, it was a different world. It was life and death and wonder and romance and bottomless pits and legendary riches. You had to be light on your feet down here and quick on the draw. Back there, all you had to be was easy on the mustard. You know what I mean? I mean, it's no wonder I was sick so much back home. That he, like, talks himself out of I having asthma by being like, mustard. <laughs> my, my issues at home are all in my head including my asthma uh and i also just kind of think that's sort of a pretty beautiful passage i'm just like the childlike understanding of suddenly being like oh my life is kind of silly childhood is silly he then later it is and that's nice later we get a passage where his dad is like i too shall not have asthma for i've learned it's a choice (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's a little weird I mean, the book is also, like, unbelievably heavy-handed about how the kids are their parents' children. Mm. Um, In ways that, like, when the parents show up in the movie, it's like, hey, that's cute. Um, And the book's like, just in case you missed it, they're all all the same, actually, as their dads. (laughs) Yeah, that is such a fun uh, reveal in the movie for Data's dad. You're like, oh, this guy that we've been following the whole movie is a mini version of a real man with the (laughs) same eccentricities. Mm -hmm. I mean, such as it is to be a child, I think. Like, if you don't have an older brother to idolize, guess what? You're following whatever your dad does. Right? Yeah. yeah. Here's a passage I love. Uh, this, is when, this is when Chunk is fighting on the ship, and it says, uh, I think this must be... No, this is when Sloth is fighting on the ship. I think it must be from the Chunk chapter. It says, Chunk got me free, and both of us went to work on the other kid's knots. As soon as... So maybe not. As soon as Jake got over his surprise at Sloth's swift move, he lunged for the big guy with his saber, and then I'll be darned if they didn't have a sword fight. My dad told me once about these kids called idiot savants, who are like born totally out to lunch about everything, except they each have one thing that they're a genius in. Like sometimes a kid like can't even tie his own shoes, but he's a musical genius and he plays concertos on the piano. Or maybe a kid can't talk or read or feed himself, but he might be a math genius and spends all his time writing equations and calculations and stuff. I think Sloth was a sword fight idiot savant. 
Nothing to be said about it. It's just great. I think, well, it's okay because he's a little kid, but kind of screwed up <laughs> only in the sense that um, Sloth, has, Sloth can communicate, probably feed himself if he's not tied up. Like, I, I, I bet Sloth does not qualify as an idiot savant, although I hope he wins the sword fight. <laughs> I actually agree with you. I think the passage is so funny because it's like when your dad tells you something as a kid that feels like high-minded or something you wouldn't learn in school, you're like, oh, that's really cool. And then you just start telling yeah. people about it. And I feel like he would yeah. pull that specific. Oh, he's being an idiot It really savant. rings... It really rings true as something a 14-year-old would think, though, yes. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. Or you just learned a new phrase and you apply it, you're like, I bet that thing is the thing I just learned. You know, you see it everywhere. Oh, yeah. wow, you're changing the Overton window. That's me from, like, 2016 to 2019, just saying that every day to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about the let's make a deal speech, uh, but that comes at the same time as, like, a sequence where everyone gets to make a speech or tell a ghost story or uh like you know data goes on this long two-page monologue about how he wants to invent an do you underwater have this up, society johnny i do yes, yeah yeah to read us a little bit of of data's monologue so as we've alluded previously there's there's just a section where they're all in a raft and all of them says here's my whole deal and monologues Someday I'm going to invent something great, he said. It's going to be a city that's under the ocean, and it's going to be inside this huge, clear plastic bubble. Space-age plastic, the kind that NASA guys developed, so it can withstand thousands of degrees of heat in case there's an underwater volcano eruption, and thousands of tons of pressure so the weight of the ocean can't crush it. It'll be clear so you can see through it to watch all the fish. So you're like surrounded on all sides by this gigantic aquarium and it won't have any seams. It'll be molded out of one huge piece of plastic so it can't spring a leak. So that's the end of that. Oh, no, I'm sorry. He goes on for another two pages. It's really uh, It'll long. be a mile in diameter and it'll have all these different levels like plateaus constructed across the bubble at different levels. And they'll be connected by ladders and blah, 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 blah. And then, uh, and then it'll be weighted. Oh, it'll be bubble will be held down by the ocean floor by gigantic anchors connected at uh, non-biodegradable uh, cables that stretch over the top of the bubble i mean it just goes on forever and what do we think was this a speech and that we'll was be completely safe and happy and we can never drown even though we're surrounded by water on all sides and life will be devoted to farming and eating and playing and discussing philosophy and working on new inventions yeah like that's the button that is so clearly like he just needs to feel safe and he's built something that will right, do he's that he's terrified of water and he's fantasizing about a situation in which he could live you know, surrounded by water and be totally safe and be in control of the situation i it, just to run well these i down. think also a fantasy that he will uh live period i think that's <laughs> what this, se this sequence is about is that like they have all almost died in multiple ways so they're like kind of expressing their hopes and dreams like i want to invent something great one day like you know when i'm an adult which i hope to be and not impaled on a spike because i didn't bring my little yeah. uh chomp chomp uh uh chattering teeth with me uh and yeah and then same with uh mouth gets to tell this whole monkey's paw ghost story thing uh it i mean i think it's crazy that like so like data's like here's my hopes and dreams and steph is like 
I love water. I'm very safe swimming. It all feels good. It's beautiful, but I am afraid of the dark. And Mouth is like, mm. my response to that is the monkey's paw story, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is not about the dark and does not tell a lot about him. <laughs> well, it is about getting wishes and then you don't want the wish, which is his only other character. Mm, nah, that's true. Yeah. Michael? Smart. Mm. Wow. It seemed like it was telegraphing uh, Stand By Me, which had yet to come out, but like this movie, that also has a let's yeah. all tell stories around the campfire section. Uh, and Well, you know, and find a dead body. This movie yeah. like includes a Stand By Me. They <laughs> knock out a Stand By Me on their way to a <laughs> we've, uh We've stood by me. We're on to new things. Yeah. At the end of Stand By Me, they're like, and that changed us forever. The Goonies are like, we got to get moving. Data's falling down a pit. We got treasure to get. Like, who cares that we saw a dead body? Man, if one of those boys from Stand By Me fell on a pit, though, they would be dead. Yeah. <laughs> is the difference. Yeah, death is, is real in Stand By Me. Hey, poor Jerry oh, O'Connell. Yeah. If he didn't out-hustle that train. The only real pain in Goonies is when you slip on an oiled log and get hit in the nuts. That pain is real. Can I, I, I just want to take mm. this opportunity talking about the, the log there's some weird cuts in the movie. I found the movie to be a, a very oddly edited, um, specifically in regard to emerging from things. So, like, there's a shot when um, Chunk gets out of the Fratelli's lair and then is, like, re-kidnapped. They're like, Chunk, go out the window. And then it, like, cuts to him, like, already being in the wilderness. And it didn't feel so plausible that he was going to fit out the window. I was like, oh, that's weird. And then the same thing happens at the end of the movie where they're like, oh, the the tunnel is collapsing. We can finally emerge out into the beach. They're like seeing it. And then they're just there. Everyone's walking there. And I'm like, where did they actually get out? Am I crazy for thinking this? Uh, I, no, I think that you're thinking about it because the screenwriters didn't. It's uh, it, it's just one of those logical. I just want to see yeah, the never orifice fully addressed that they come out of. Well, it was shot <laughs> in like, like so many different locations. Uh, one of the places, the the beach at the end is in Bodega Bay, which was like two hours south of where I grew up, and we used to go there on vacation. So I would always love to go see the Goonie Beach. But most of the rest of it, I think, was shot in Oregon, like by Newport or something. It feels like they kind of forgot, and then we're like, we're not going to go back and do an insert shot. Like, there's no point in getting all these kids back. I bet it's a lack of ability slash then not caring to get that shot, because it doesn't advance the plot or illuminate a character. It just makes the geography clear. And I bet they were like, yeah, we'll just eat it. We'll just let that cut be a little rough. We all understand that they get out. They got out. Yeah, yeah. The reason I'm sure everyone who watched this movie uh, streamed it or something, but if you do have the DVD, this has one of the best audio commentaries ever because it is a video commentary with like, uh, you know, it's a, it's in a little window and it's Richard Donner and all the kids, all of them in one place. Wow. At, like a long table watching the movie. And there's still 15. No one knows <laughs> how they pulled it off. And Donner just looks I mean, he he seems that he is he is very proud and and happy for all of them, but he's also simultaneously a little embarrassed by the movie. They keep calling out plot holes and asking Richard Donner like why such things happen, and he doesn't really have an answer for them. Uh, they also alone. pitch him a sequel in <laughs> real time. Man. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty great. I remember watching it numerous times, like when that DVD first came. That out. That sounds like, delightful. In, yeah, you know, twenty years ago. That sounds or more. like a lot of fun. The 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 reason that I that the log made me think of the weird cuts is because in the book it's very apparent from the prose that they're like this stream that the log goes across surges at certain points 
Whereas in the movie, it's like when the Fratellis slip, it cuts back to them. It's like, why is it like a raging river now? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's because it's near the ocean, right? So the wave action is impacting it. Yeah, I guess it's not made clear in the movie. It's justifiable, for sure, especially on the back end if you're writing a novelization. Khan kills it. (laughs) It's like in The Rescuers, like the tide comes in through the cave. Oh, does anyone Mm -hmm. watch The Rescuers as kids? Oh, yeah. Anyone play the, ah, Spielberg connection? Spielberg and Lucas worked out a story and realized at the time that the effects didn't exist to turn it into a movie franchise. So they made it into a LucasArts point-and-click adventure game that's been forgotten by time, but it's called The Dig, and it's super good. The Dig was great. And there's a puzzle you resolve by waiting until the thing surges in the cave, and then you jump across, because you can get across when the wave is supporting you huh wow i want to play that again so hey if i could read a passage from the novelization of the goonies i would this is what i have to share (laughs) you're bringing a lot to the table don't worry about it i want to close out not the episode but this loop of the brand thing by Mm -hmm. reading brand's monologue when they're like in the on the endless river all monologuing it says um i feel safer with you here i heard andy whisper to brand Nothing much scares you. Brand was quiet a minute, and then he said, Something does scare me. Small spaces scare me. I was kind of shocked to hear him say it, but I was glad he did, partly because it was big of him to admit it, and it made me like him better for copping to one of his weaknesses, and partly because it made me feel not so bad about blabbing to Andy about him freaking out in the elevator. Elevators scare me, he kept on talking. And closets scare me, and even cars scare me a little. I think that's why I screwed up getting my driver's license. Excuses, excuses, said Mouth. Shut up, Mouth, I told him. I wanted to hear what Brand had to say. I know why they scare me, though, he said. It's because when I was six, I accidentally locked myself in an old refrigerator in the basement. I knew I wasn't supposed to go near it, but I went anyway, and then I couldn't get out. So I was afraid to call for help, because I knew I'd get in trouble. So I just sat in there in this totally black, tiny, closed-in space, and it seemed like it was getting smaller and smaller and smaller, until I couldn't stand it anymore. And I started kicking and yelling, and Mom heard me and got me right away. And you know what? She spanked me for playing with the thing. Here I was, half-choking to death, and she rattles my tree for it. So ever since then, I don't know, small spaces just kind of get me. Make me feel, I I don't know, like I did when I was six. Real scared. I call my butt my tree, by the way. That, that, that'll make it make more sense. <laughs> Hannah, do you agree with me that this through line is excellent? I feel like... It is excellent. No, I really like it. I like that it gives Brand some like additional vulnerability and weakness, yeah. uh, which they all have something and they all have to overcome it. And for him to like own up that he's not just like a tough dude, he has like more to him, I think is very nice. And that Mikey's able to look at him and be like... That's like, I'm proud of my brother. I love him. And I accept that when he's hard on me, it's because he is dealing with his own stuff. Yeah, it's good. It's a good through line. It's nice. I'm pro brand. (laughs) And it's got the one, two, three escalation that comprises an actual planned payoff arc, meaning (laughs) you present the idea. Oh, he's claustrophobic. You have someone betray him. Oh, betray his trust, right? And then you have that resolved. It's like the opposite of how the film handles the wish moment that we were talking about, (laughs) whereas the Feldman thing feels totally unsupported. This is how you do it. It's not that hard. It's just make it like three scenes instead of one scene. 
So it yeah. feels like it's not out of nowhere. <laughs> All of this is better than what's in the movie. But like you understand, yeah, we can't just stop the movie for 10 minutes while they all tell stories around the, you know, right in the dark. Mm-hmm. I don't um, think Mouse doing the monkey paw thing is good. Uh, the, no, monkey the monkey paw, paw thing, thing is a I, reach. Yeah. It's like it's you're all reach. going around a circle. Everyone has something really vulnerable and poignant to say. And they get to him and he's like... I guess everyone has to have one. Uh, <laughs> when he tells the monkey paw story, like Mikey justifies it for him in his monologue, in his internal thing. And is like, well, we were all really scared. And at least it got us not scared about our real situation. We were scared about this monkey paw story. And that was a nice thing of mouth to do. And it's like, he wasn't doing that on purpose. That honey. was his way of showing love or bullshitting. Cause he has nothing. <laughs> but yeah. For me, the, the sentiment of this book worked pretty well. I found the, I found the uh, Mikey's fear uh, very moving, and I I, it, the, I I thought this book succeeded on a really basic level, which is it put me in this kid's head. I really felt uh, worried that they were going to lose their home, and when I was watching the movie, because it's so fun, because the kids are so funny, I wasn't I wasn't feeling that worry. Oh yeah, or in no point do the stakes feel real, real, because movies are a whole lexicon onto themselves and the audience is aware of these things that tip off what the tone is, right? And even the score, everything, within a few scenes, you're like, the tone of this movie is such that these kids are not going to die. Like, that would be jarring. Um, And there are very rarely movies that play with that expectation and set you up for that and then the kid does die, you know, (laughs) but that's a very different movie. This movie does exactly what you feel like it's going to do. And I don't mean in a bad way, like it's rote and predictable. I just mean it stays in its tonal lane. It doesn't suddenly throw like a left turn at you. So it's keeping its promises, yeah. which I appreciate. Whereas the passages that you're reading from the book make it sound like in order to expand the characters, the author really grounded it and made the stakes feel more real like hey let's slow down and talk about what it would be like to lose your house whereas the movie just sets that up as very simply the stakes we're gonna lose our house we need money let's get on with the adventure just a different exercise I do feel like the book presents a story where I feel like it's realistic that the kids might have to say goodbye to each other at the end. Mm, Like the tone of the book is like, well, we probably won't die. Nobody's going to die here, but we may not be able to save our homes and we'll just have this one last great adventure and then we'll have to say like, see you around, buddy. Um, And that's not what happens. And that's nice. It is a different tone than the movie. We're like, these kids are going to be great. They're going to solve it. I don't know what it's going to happen, but they're going (laughs) to have a good time doing it. (laughs) Exactly. Like if, gosh, if they had blended Chunk's hand, what a different movie. Wow. (laughs) Just inches away from a completely different experience. Here's the the sort of sentimental ending that I really enjoyed. They're still on the beach. This is Mikey's internal thoughts, as all of the book is. Uh, It says, the wind was blowing, the sun was setting. I remember everything about that moment. The way the blanket was wrapped around me for warmth. The sadness in Mom's eye as she watched Dad take the pen from Troy. The way it was so quiet, you could hear someone cough, and someone else rubbing his hands together. The way the salt air smelled with the coolness coming on, and the long shadows and the gritty sand in my hair, and the way my tears tasted. And I felt so close to everyone here. There was so much love and loyalty. It was like hard to even work up a big hate against these ignorant clods who had money, and now had our houses but who somehow seemed so pathetic and pitiful for everything they didn't have. 
I remember the way the Fratellis looked, handcuffed to a patrol wagon. I remember the way Rosalita looked, trying to keep from being sad by folding my wet clothes on a big rock. I remember the look of shock on her face as Dad started to sign, and suddenly started shouting in Spanish, and then we did the big reveal. But that's what you're talking about, Hannah. It feels real. It feels sad. It feels true to life until they do the big Hollywood ending, which isn't bad. It's just, it's cool. It's like, the book really commits all to... All it has... Sorry, go. No, no. I mean, all the whole book, I think, has a much more sort of like, this is the end of something tone. That no matter what, their lives are going to change. They're growing up. It's all coming to an end. And even like the like they get the big reveal. And in the very, very end of the book is still like, and everyone on that beach watched him sail away. Nobody moved or said a word until the ship was just a dot on the horizon. And then it was gone. And it still has that sort of like sadness of something coming to an end, even if it has the big Hollywood ending. Um, and that's just like looking back on your childhood, even by like a month, like who you were at 13 a month ago and who you are today at 13 is so different. Yeah. And I, I like that about the book a lot. It is kind of amazing that Fratelli's like own guns and barely use them, like shoot at the kids a couple of times, but then just stop trying to shoot at them. Because if they never shot at them at all, you could logic that, well, they're not going to shoot at kids. They have some line, but no, they're they perfectly willing to shoot them. at kids. <laughs> <laughs> they just won't finish the job like they're just not good at it <laughs> like they're standing on a pirate ship and yeah. instead of like we have swords we have guns we could just kill these kids they're like let's do a walk the plank where that you can escape from that's no biggie but it's on theme come on guys <laughs> it is on theme <laughs> gotta do the bit gotta commit to the bit mm. Mm. johnny pomato uh sloth is standing over you and you swear to god he must be eight feet tall no, really, it scares you so bad. So you, so he reaches down, and for just a second, you think you're buying the farm. He grabs you by the shoulders, lifts you, until your face is just even with his, which seems like close to stationary orbit. Good line. Holds you there for a few seconds, and then, now get this, he kisses you on the lips. But, don't get you wrong, Johnny. It's not like perverted or anything. It's like he's trying to be friends. I mean, it kind of freaks you out at first, but then he just throws his head back and giggles, real friendly-like. The thing is, though, his breath smells like the locker room during football season. So you mention that to him. So he drops you. Then you have to spend more time in Sloth's cell, because you're, like, locked up or something. Would you, with the time you have, read the novelization of The Goonies by James Caan? Oh, I thought uh, you were going to say sleep with sloth. Would you take, it to the next level. take this to a logical conclusion? <laughs> Keeping in mind that now he's kind of your brother because oh, your parents true. adopted yeah. him. Uh, but he's so hot, according to the book. Um, <laughs> I So not only would I read this book, but I, I failed to uh, mention this earlier, but I can't be certain... But I may have read this book. This might be the first novelization that we did that, as a kid, I read. Because I did read a lot of novelizations in my uh, middle school. And this might have been one of them. I think it's great. Uh, I think it is, in some ways, better than the movie. I don't know. Or, or at least it, it fills in a few of the gaps. It has the octopus scene. You don't need to worry about the shoddy rubber special effects that, you know, look straight out of, uh, like, Bride of the Monster. Uh it's uh, it's it's fun. It's breezy. Uh, it has that kid's point of view that just makes it, you know, like you feel like you're one of them. Uh, I think it's great for kids. Uh, 
you know, and I got a little something out of it as an adult as well. So, yeah, it's great. Michael Swaim, you are a teenage girl coveted by many. You share a wonderful kiss in some Byzantine caves. Is that what Byzantine means? Please say with sloth. Please say with No, sloth. it's with... That would be of the Byzantium Empire. You think it's with uh, a, a claustrophobic age-appropriate boy. But after you have the kiss, you're talking to your friend Steph, and she says, next time, you gotta kiss him with your eyes open. It's a whole different experience. And you say, well, if anyone knows, you should. I wasn't interested in watching, though. I just thought that if this was going to be my last day on Earth, I wanted to make this boy I kissed my last meal. And then your friend, this part's very strange. She says, Someday I'll tell you a secret about this. Meaning what, you ask? Meaning apples are tastier when they're not quite ripe. A line from the book, uh, you don't totally grasp what's going on, but you're horrified. Really rattled my tree. Yeah, your tree (laughs) is, your apple tree is rattled. And (laughs) you immediately climb up out of the well, go home, and abandon this mission. Because you don't know what just happened, Mm. but it's disgusting. Uh, Would you, with your newfound free time, not adventuring... Listen to three strangers tell you about a novelization you didn't read of a movie you quite like. Uh, I guess I just did, so I have to say yes. (laughs) Uh, My mind as a comedy writer is too busy working on some kind of, like, if the apples got a peel, play ball. (laughs) Like, there's something there. But, um, But yeah, man, this was delightful. Uh, I would rather do that than read it myself. Let's leave it there. <laughs> well, it seems like this worked out for you then. Oh, the perfect media sandwich is to, that's why I love podcasting. Watch a thing, uh, not read the novelization, and then talk about the thing. This is, you've done this perfectly for me. <laughs> Andrew Overby, you are a criminal. You do crimes. You've killed people and you'll do it again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and not only will you kill people, you'll kill children. You don't give a shit. Um, and one day you break out of prison and you are hanging out with your mama and your brother who's wearing a toupee now and you're just not going to mention Great. it. It looks good on him. And it's not a big deal. Um, and one, you're killing time, right? You're counterfeiting money, but mostly you're hanging out. Um, while you're hanging out, do you think you would read the novelization of The Goonies by James Caan? Definitely. Definitely. Miss James Mm -hmm. Caan every Mm -hmm. day. Thief, one of the all-time best. Can't believe he was able to fit this into his schedule. Just... I can't believe it took this long to make this joke. In between shoots. (laughs) Um... Yeah, I I loved this book. I think this is one of the best types of novelizations we can encounter, which is the writers obviously given a ton of leeway by the studio. They make all of these embellishments, just tons. I mean, there's like 50 we didn't even mention. There's, it's, if you enjoyed this episode and you tend to read novelizations, try to read this one because there's even more to find here. We didn't even talk about the octopus scene uh, which is just a whole fun action scene that, like Johnny said, was cut for the movie and resurrected for the book. Um, but like we were saying earlier, I think every embellishment done in this book is true to the spirit of the characters and the spirit of the movie. It has a ton to offer. 
Hannah Blackman, mm-hmm. you are a frustrated novelist. You have seen no success, and you have just been hired by the local newspaper to write about the Fratelli jailbreak. Yeah. And you were going to mm-hmm. use this opportunity to flex all of your narrative storytelling ability. Yep. I'm going to give it some spice. You are fired for not speaking in the voice <laughs> of the Seaside Herald. Their loss. In your unemployment, to fill your nine to five, mm. would you read The Goonies by James Caan? Um, yes. As a currently unemployed person, that's what I did. So yes, I would do it in your hypothetical <laughs> scenario as well. Um, as has been said, this is a good book. It is really rich. It adds a lot to these kids. And I like the way Mikey dips in and out of maturity as a narrator. I think that's really compelling. And I was very moved again to learn that Sloth got his bar mitzvah. And that alone makes the book worthwhile to me. And I, did, I don't love the movie. I really don't. It's nice, but it doesn't touch my heart. And this book did touch my heart. So pro book would read and recommend to people who like this sort of thing. Michael Swaim, in defiance of all criticism that you've presumably received in the past, <laughs> good and bad, you produce content and you don't seem to be stopping anytime soon. So what is it? Where can our listeners find it? And... How you feeling at the end of all this? Pretty darn good. Thank you for the opportunity. Enjoyed my time here. This was lovely. Uh, yeah, if you like the way I jibber-jabber, my priority right now that's public-facing is podcasting. My podcast network is called Small Beans, which you can find by searching the words Small Beans wherever you get your podcasts. We run all sorts of podcasts. It's a network of about uh, five to seven hosts, and in various combinations, we do shows about... Uh, movies, grief and trauma, social justice issues, uh, Star Trek, Futurama, the Coen brothers, um, lots of filmic deep dives, um, all kinds of stuff, music, friendship. So yeah, check it out. Small beans. Um, the shorter the stem, the sweeter the apple. That's all I have to say. (laughs) I am out. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming on. This was truly a delight. Thank you guys. To our listeners. Please do rate our podcast. Please do review it. Subscribe if you feel like it. But most importantly, you know, you don't have to do any of those. Just tell some friends. Tell some friends that the show exists and that you want them to hear it. That you might not speak to them again unless they come with information about the show that could only have been gleaned through listening. We also have a Patreon, so check that out. Patreon.com slash authorized pod. And as usual, I'm going to close the episode by reading a piece from a classic piece of literature. I'm sorry, a passage from a classic piece of literature. I'm losing my mojo. Please do tweet at AuthorizedPod if you recognize what this is from. The ghost of One-Eyed Willie piloted the ship across the glassy sea. His also ghost first mate came up to him. Hey, One-Eyed... All those kids that took a little bit of our treasure are apparently coming to get more on the high seas. <laughs> Willie was enraged. Why would they do that? I gave them a little bag of gold. Well, you know, Willie, when you give a mouse a cookie. Good night.
as discussed on the episode, <laughs> the character of Mikey in the novelization of The Goonies is obsessed with the Mad Magazine fold-ins. And I, of course, a little too young for the, for the heyday of Mad Magazine, uh, I went and looked these up, and I, too, am now obsessed with the Mad Magazine fold-ins. And I got this book, Mad Magazine, Fold This Book. Because I was so inspired by this, I have created... Uh, created's too strong a word, Johnny. I see your excitement. I have aggregated. Oh, okay. I know, I know. I thought about that. I was like, can I make the PowerPoint fold? All right, so here's the concept. Is anybody unfamiliar with the Mad Magazine fold-in format? Okay, for the listener, uh, image has some question in the upper corner, and then when folded in, both the image and the text at the bottom reveal the answer to that question. So in this first example slide, we have what big disaster has occurred on this page uh, and the picture is of factories spewing pollution up into the air. Uh, can anyone tell, once again, just an example slide, not for points, can anyone tell what the answer is or sort of what the spirit of the answer to this question is? Yes, easily and immediately, Andrew. This is a bad one. I would say the good ones obscure it much more successfully. Okay. Okay, go ahead. What, oh, what, oh, okay. What's, uh... I didn't know if we were answering. No, no, please. I didn't want to spoil... A Mad Magazine fold-in from 1904. But uh, <laughs> the buildings are in the shape of uh, a dude shrugging and going like, oh boy. And uh, the real trick, once you've been through a few of these fold-ins that you get, is to scan down at the A and B line and just look at yes. the words. So the letters, and it was really, is uh, no idea. So something no idea. So I'm like, okay. Uh, the punchline is like, we don't know. We're shrugging. No idea. That's my guess. I'm going to give that not point to you since it was an example, but you got this right. The answer is, of course, no fold-in idea. And <laughs> it's revealed that this uh, is the middle-aged writer uh, who has fallen asleep uh, sort of on his own hand, and uh, <laughs> he has no idea of what to put in the fold-in. I didn't know it was going to be meta, though. It's satisfyingly meta. I was trying to deduce what the writing was in in his cloud bubble, uh, because yeah, you could see that these little green puffs of smoke were going to spell something, but uh, I never would have pre predicted uh, yich, uh, y e c c h. Uh, never seen that spelling of any uh, variation on yuck before, but uh, hey, that's why the Mad Magazine writers get paid the big bucks. This game will consist of nine more of these. Great game planning because it allows for a three-way tie. Super satisfying. <laughs> I can guarantee I will no, I will get no points on this. It's very unlikely. Yeah, I think Michael's going to walk away with this. I, mean, I'm <laughs> I think it's possible that will happen. <laughs> <laughs> I have so, a small laminated collection of mad fold-ins. What of it? <laughs> the way this will work is that uh, let me read the... Uh, question in the upper corner and then buzz in with your first name at which point I will make you describe the photo to the listener and then you can provide your answer up first how did today's crooks really strike it rich bing bing <laughs> oh, oh. Michael uh, yeah it took, a, it took a little minute mainly because the image is 
Um, a corrupt politician, a mass murderer, a corporate embezzler, literally guys wearing signs. It's weird that they're in a lineup, like a usual suspect style lineup, when they've yeah. already been given prisoner numbers and are labeled as the crime they've been convicted of. I don't know who you're identifying. Well, but this is what's wrong with today's police force. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, they're behind, you know, there's a bunch of graffiti behind them. And I was taking the easy win, which is like hell it does. Like hell it does something. Oh, like hell it does crime pays plenty. Ah, yeah. and then uh, from book sales is the bottom. Zing, Incredible. Zing. Oh. Uh, Hannah and Johnny, oh, wow. you don't stand a chance. <laughs> so the answer is from book sales and the, the graffiti uh, becomes justice, justice triumphs with a question mark. So justice triumphs. Like hell it does crime pays plenty. Okay, up next, what frightening ancient relic will be the focus of much attention and fanfare this summer. Since we're all working on it for a second, Johnny, what are we looking at here? Well, yeah, uh, you, you basically have uh, uh, Indiana Jones swinging on a whip. His back is to us, but uh, we can see his hat. It's unmistakable. Uh, there seem to be some, uh, uh, you know what? I'm going to be generous and say not too um, racist uh, depictions of uh, <laughs> uh, sword-wielding natives, maybe. Natives. I don't know. Yeah, general natives. <laughs> ding, ding. Hannah Blackman has an answer. I think that the answer is John McCain. Right? It's a weird one. Yeah. The answer is, of course, John McCain. Unsettlingly <laughs> recent Woo! for man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was trying to be like, well, certainly this is from 1983, but mm -hmm. it feels more recent than that. Wow. A uh, reminder to the listener Ooh. that all of these PowerPoints are available on our Instagram if you want to see what this was all about. Great job, Hannah. Up next, we have... <laughs> What controversial bill has done irreparable harm to an untold number of Americans? Johnny. Ding. Ding. Johnny. Oh. Got to give it to Johnny. Okay. Johnny, what I, are we looking I, at? Well, we're, we're seeing sort of like a, uh, uh, like, like a town hall hearing, a, uh, a, a committee. You have these people at these desks, and my eyes cannot see what the little graphs are, but there's, there's people presenting things. Raise wages, raise profits. Oh, okay. And then raise oh, Congress, raise but raise like to burn down. Oh, okay. Uh, and yeah, so they're doing a presentation to a uh, auditorium, but, uh, you know, they're, they're, there's these inconspicuous lights that are illuminating that almost look like eyeballs. And <laughs> I would say that if you folded this in, it would reveal a face, and I think that that bill is Bill Clinton. <gasps> oh, ding, ding, ding. Mm, double <laughs> Michael ding. Michael Swaim is Bill Cosby. This oh, is, of course, what controversial bill has done irreparable harm to an untold number of Americans? Bill Cosby. Oh, the wow, Muppet, that's abstract. Okay. The Muppet version of Bill Cosby. It's definitely, I'm telling you, go for the words. The I image yeah. didn't give it to me. It was the words. The, the sweater pattern helped the, me clarify. Yes, the, the, the people in the audience have folded in, the people in the audience of this like town hall have folded in to become one of Bill Cosby's signature sweaters. It's I can see like the eyebrows, and I thought that he, it was so it was so gray. It was like that that you know slick willy silver. So yeah, mm. I, Johnny, I, yeah. not to pile on you, but I think this is one of the genius things about this one is that I figured out the Bill Cosby thing when I first looked at it. But after going, oh, Bill Clinton, mm -hmm. politics, Bill, and then I was like, wait, but I can't see his face in this thing. 
Like it's yeah. a it's a good misdirect. Well, that's the thing about Mad. The joke that makes sense that they should make is not necessarily the joke they will make. Blech. Up next, what recent spiritual movement has, thank God, burned itself out? Oh, uh, Johnny. Johnny Pomato. It is. Hold on. Let me see if I can get the exact wording from. Uh, well, it is E.T., former friend of the show and subject of this uh, podcast. Uh, that is E.T., the extraterrestrial, and I'm sorry, but my eyes are failing me. No, I have to the, give it to you, Johnny. That is the yeah. gist of this. What recent spiritual movement has, thank God, burned itself out? E.T. worship. Oh, okay. Yeah. The mm-hmm. sleeves are the eyes. That's uh, hard yes. to pull off. <laughs> the Oh, yes, we didn't describe the image, but uh, Michael, how would you describe the first image? Oh, uh, like a hooded warlock, like a generic black mage from an early Final Fantasy game with a cosmic background that might be painted on a, an RV from the 70s you wouldn't want to go in willy-nilly <laughs> without knocking. Uh, and, like, uh, you know, druids at the bottom and, and some kind of flames. And then you fold it in, and it's a very happy, mustachioed E.T. looking up at the cosmos. <laughs> this E.T. is blissed the fuck out. Yeah, he's very pleased. Yes, making a face that I don't think he ever quite made in the movie. But uh, clearly these Mad Magazine writers have never met our uh, former guest, Mike Duquette, who uh, just loves that E.T. And, and who can blame him, folks? Disgusting little freak is E.T. Moving on. You had to clarify that you weren't talking about Mike there. Disgusting little freak is (laughs) E.T. Up next. uh, I can't read this because my thing's over it. What potential health threat has been linked to the nation's pig population? Now, Andrew, it's a little hard because the section of the image from B over to the edge is not visible. Yeah, I think I messed it up a little bit. I've been getting better at the... What, I've been getting better at PowerPoint's <laughs> like move backward f- feature with images, but I fucked up. This is no, but <laughs> they're getting harder. The difficulty curve. This is the hard setting. Like, <laughs> we just have to abstract from the A what the B would mm-hmm, be. Mm-hmm. I think we can do it. If I but butterfly sort of that, they look like this vegetables. As a team. Like, I think it looks like bacon oh, and eggs, like in a ding. Oh, oh, oh! You're right, That's Michael Swain. There, I was uh, thinking uh, Denny's Grand Slam breakfast. Uh, it's bacon oh, and eggs bravo, and bravo. sausage and stuff. Yeah, nice. And what was uh, the original image here? That amazing we had? touch that the pigs. Oh, it's a bunch of pigs at a trough in like a factory farm being fed slop by industrial workers who are COVID safe, um, but <laughs> have crappy jobs. Uh, I what I like is. Rare, rare that you can like draw a pig and then you fold it in and the pig is sausage. That's like the, exactly the magazines don't usually, yeah, accomplish. The pigs that. are also mm-hmm. eggs. The pigs really become everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Part of this balanced breakfast, six pigs. <laughs> this this was a good team win. <laughs> Michael's Up getting next. the point, but in my heart, it was all of us. <laughs> For many Americans, what is the most important form they were, will ever fill out? Bing. Uh, they're March Madness brackets. And what do we see in the original image here, We're looking Michael? at someone filling out paperwork at a DMV-type place where they oh, file, I... which is bizarre. They collectively hmm. file uh, college applications, tax returns, car loans, your marriage license, which he has like seven of. And job applications. I don't know what kind of office it is, but I got a super quick only because uh, I would say the image is less camouflage than usual. There are posters of guys 
basically yeah. playing basketball <laughs> in, on the wall behind them. They just are like ovating to a holy figure, but they're in basketball jerseys. And if you look uh, very carefully on the desk, there are just literally March Madness brackets drawn on the desk. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I agree. I, I think this is probably the weakest of the batch because, the, like you say, the photos on the wall in their original form are nonsensical. And here we see that they fold into a bunch of people reaching up for a basketball as a man. Quite impressive fills how that pencil folds together. Oh, yeah. My opinion. Oh, Whoa. Yeah. Paper to pencil, another thematic connection. Wait, where is the where is the eraser in the original image of the eraser it's on the like pencil? It's like the the pink edge of the paper he's holding. Mm. Oh, and the pencil Whoa. tip is hidden in the flowers. Okay, I have to take it all back. This is the best one in the batch. <laughs> Al Jaffe, you've done it again. <laughs> yeah, they're not taking early lunches over there. Do you think Al Jaffe, he starts come on with the final image and then expands the middle, or does he? Figure it all out, sort of like amorphously. I think that's a secret of the trade. I don't, don't <laughs> ever takes tell us. ayahuasca, and when he wakes up, these are there. <laughs> and I have to imagine Sergio Aragones is passed out next to him. Up next, what chemical using villain could not be brought to justice in 2013? Okay, it's it's a. Uh, it's a baseball uh, like a player, f- I think. I, I, I think mm-hmm. it's someone holding a bat. So who was a popular uh, uh, steroid-using player? Oh, 20... In, yeah, 2013. Al- Alex that, Rodriguez. Oh, th- that, that's probably... Yeah, okay. Hannah, you have gotten it correct. Could you describe uh, oh. what's in the pre-image for us? Yeah, so the pre-image is sort of like a bunch of riot cops sort of fucking with what looks to be... You know, like a uh, a Middle Easterny country. Um, they're all in like little uniforms. I don't know if I'm describing this accurately. No, no, you're right. It's basically it's riot as vague cops as it is. Fold <laughs> in to a single baseball player wearing the number thirteen, Alex Rodriguez. Mm. I think I can take an assist on this one. I, uh, you know, you know, I'm taking the point. Oh, yeah. totally. Yeah, yeah. It was not a team Take effort. the point. By but all can means. I point something out that really threw me? Th- I thought I was dinging in late to guess wrong and guess Walter White. Exactly, it's right up it, there. Is there not a Walter White icon like you see on people's bumpers? Uh, in the buildings, and what's interesting is when they fold it in, that oh goes my away. God. It's like not part of it's it. It's not there. It, There's it, a red herring in the Is fold this in. something that they do, like misdirect? If it folded at a slightly different point, You'd get that a different thing. Yeah. I mean, it must be said, in case people are not checking the Instagram, this is not Michael, like, sort of, like, creatively being like, I thought it might be a Walter White. They have fully put a decoy in. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and that makes sense. This would have been the last season of Breaking Bad, 2013. Clearly, they can't be trusted. Up next, what's the next big development in e-cigarettes? Uh, H- Hannah. Hannah Blackman, what are we looking at here? Th- we're looking at um, some people looking at a projection of some guys spraying plants with insecticide. Mm. And I think the solution is treating cancer cells or something like that. It folds together to be like lungs. While you are oh. on the right track, I cannot award you joke, the spirit so... of the joke. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. But I would that was follow exactly that what I was going to guess, though. Same. What's the next? Lung. Uh, oh, uh, lung uh, ray? Lung x ray? 
Lung x-ray. The image is a lung x-ray. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. know yes, what the concept right. is, though, so I'm not digging in. I is still it treating e-cancer? E the answer is, of course, like e treating e-cancer. <laughs> Wait, what the hell? What is that supposed to mean? Wow, it's a good joke. Not the What's best? the next development in e-cigarettes? Treating, treating e-cancer. E- oh, when you say back to back, I see what they were going for, but it's still not great. Yeah, I think we gave him a little too much credit after that Walter White thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Our final one. What deeply buried commodity do Americans want to see energy companies produce? Gosh, you know what? It's crazy. I think I remember this one. Hannah. Hannah Black. I'm buzzing in. I think it is the truth about the hazards of fracking. This is, of course, an oil rig. The truth about the hazards of fracking. Hannah, would you describe this uh, before and after Mm -hmm. image? For the sure. This is all credit to Michael, who taught me how to look at these. I just <laughs> want to be clear. Um, the first image is like an oil rig, and they're drilling, and the oil is spurting up and getting everywhere, and all the guys are like, oh, no. Um, and the after is not that. It's it's fracking. They're digging in the ground. There's little stuff, and one of them looks like a skull. I don't really know how to describe what's happening in the after. Yeah, I think the most important thing about the after image is that many of the things have become a giant skull. Yes. Yeah, it's not their A material. I mean, these uh, these <laughs> machines that, that are, are still just weird machines that don't seem to have a, Again, a real Again, if they're purpose. fracking at the end, they were already fracking in the beginning. Like, the folding didn't change the machines or anything. It's all yeah. the same trucks and pumps and stuff are in the same spots. It's a weird one. It just I gotta go to bat for my boy people. Jaffe, who's, you know, <laughs> one of my main dudes uh, since uh, Wednesday. Um... I I feel like the it, it's a good misdirect where it's like not a misdirect but the the distinction here is that the first one really shows booming industry and the second one is like under booming industry lies death and the first one's oil and the second one omits the oil mm. I don't know I don't know I'm not sold on this Mad Magazine there's, there's something to it it feels that all the people have gone that like fracking kills more people yeah, than all the oil people have maybe. disappeared it also yeah. feels like a joke you would tweet or tell on stage almost with a hottie of air of like you have to laugh because that's the right side of history <laughs> like you know what congress <laughs> should talk about the dangers of fracking am i right or am i right people? no i, I don't like that you. energy from a full i day. promise you that even in chicago if i went up on stage and i was like what deeply buried commodity do americans <laughs> want to see energy companies produce uh, the truth about the hazards of fracking? People would not laugh. That's horrible. <laughs> um, I think, uh, Hannah, am I correct about this? I think the first game I've ever made that relies on you, like, figuring it out in the moment and not coming in with pre-existing knowledge. Sure. If you yeah. omit the fact that I own this book and it's in my house. <laughs> <laughs> It I was think a humbling experience. I puzzle solving games, but that was great. Technically, Michael and I tied, but nice. I think the winner truly is Michael, who <laughs> really just opened the door to these for me. Teach a person to fold in, <laughs> and they'll waste the rest of their lives. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. That was fun.